Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Friday morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started with five things to know for July 21st. New this morning, Russia targets the world's food again. It hit grain warehouses overnight in Ukraine, destroying tons of barley and peas. And the deadline is over now for Donald Trump to testify about efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But the federal investigation is pushing forward. More witnesses are scheduled to be interviewed in the coming weeks as anticipation builds over another possible indictment for the former president. Chilling new details in the Gilgo Beach murders, investigators now operating on the theory that Rex Hewerman murdered the women inside of his home, suggesting that he lured the victims to his house when his family was out of town. And Vice President Kamala Harris making a last-minute trip to Florida today to speak out about the state's new black history standards for schools. She says the new mandate is an attempt to gaslight students. And if you've got a double feature lined up this weekend, you're far from alone. Barbie and versus Oppenheimer. This is really a versus situation. Is shaping up to be the biggest box office battle we've seen in years. Seen in this morning starts right now. Abby, I, All right. I, I have a confession. I woke up this morning terrified that you were going to come like dressed for either Barbie or Oppenheimer, and I wasn't prepared. I'm dressed dressed for neither, but I did make it to Friday with you, Phil. I'm happy about that. And I might might actually have a double feature in my future tonight. Yeah. Well, happy Friday to you all. We have a lot of news today breaking overnight. We'll start in Ukraine. Russia has attacked the port city of Odessa for a fourth night in a row. The intense bombardment has been devastating grain warehouses that are critical to keeping people fed in developing nations. Officials say that 100 tons of peas and 20 tons of barley have now been destroyed. Russia had already destroyed 60,000 tons of grain earlier this week, and the U.N. says it could have fed more than 270,000 people with that grain. Ukraine has been struggling to repel this wave of Russian strikes as its air defenses simply can't cope with the types of missiles that Moscow is using now. And that all happening as CIA Director Bill Burns is now warning that Russia could be preparing for a false flag operation in the Black Sea. We see some very concerning signs of the Russians considering the kind of false flag operations that, you know, we highlighted in the run up to the war as well. In other words, looking at ways in which, you know, they might uh, make attacks against shipping in the Black Sea and then blaming it or trying to blame it on the Ukrainians. Let's get straight to CNN. Scott McLean live in London. Scott, there's a lot of moving parts of this right now, but based on what we're hearing about what's happening on the ground, what is the latest in Ukraine? Hey, Phil. Yeah. So yesterday, the Ukrainians managed to shoot down barely a quarter of the incoming missiles on Odessa. Today, there's no indication that they've managed to shoot down anything, frankly, on this strike on uh, what looks to be a, a grain elevator or some grain silos there. Two people were injured. But this really illustrates the difficulty that the Ukrainians have been having and actually dealing with the Russian incoming missiles, some of which are designed to sink ships. 
Case in point, the local governor there says that in this case, the two missiles came in at such a low altitude that air defenses didn't even initially pick them up at all, meaning the air raid sirens for the local population didn't even go off until about the same time that that first missile was actually striking its target. The Ukrainians say that, look, air defenses in that area are obviously not good enough. They say that the Patriot system would do a lot better of a job. The Ukrainians have at least two of those systems, more on the way, but they say that a lot more will be needed to adequately protect the country. In terms of what was hit, you mentioned it already, more than 100 tons of peas and barley. This is a relative drop in the bucket when we're talking about the global market, but what is likely to have a much bigger impact is Ukraine's ability to actually use the port of Odessa, which right now isn't all that easy considering that the Russians say that civilian ships going in there could be carrying weapons and they are fair game. And let's also remember, uh, Phil and Abby, that Ukraine makes up 10% or more of the global market for wheat, corn, and barley. Yeah, a critical source of supply of food for the rest of the world. Scott McLean, thank you. Well, also this morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he's expanding his war on woke and taking on Bud Light directly. He's threatening legal action against Anheuser-Busch over its social media promotion with a transgender influencer. The Instagram video sparked enormous conservative outrage and backlash and sent Bud Light sales plummeting. In a letter to Florida's pension fund manager obtained by CNN, DeSantis suggests that the beer company breached its legal duties to its shareholders when it collaborated with what he calls radical social ideologies. Here's what the governor told Fox News last night. Since we do have these shares, uh, we believe that when you take your eye off the ball like that, you're not following your fiduciary duty uh, to do the best you can for your shareholders. So we're going to be launching an inquiry uh, about Bud Light and InBev. And it could be something that leads to a derivative lawsuit uh, filed on behalf of the shareholders of the Florida uh, Pension Fund. DeSantis has become pretty well known for injecting himself and Florida into the middle of America's culture wars. He's been fighting to gain momentum, though, in the presidential race and to close that gap with Donald Trump. So far, it's been pretty challenging for DeSantis. But despite all of the talk of a pivot, we don't really see that in terms of the message yet. Certainly not on the messaging. And even though he's changed some of his interview venues or the platforms, obviously having that exclusive with Jake Tapper earlier, it is very clear that this is an issue or this is a broader uh, kind of target that he believes works. And he has, uh, I think, results, no question about it, in Florida. The most interesting thing about DeSantis is that he's, unlike a lot of people who've just used rhetoric on culture war stuff uh, or kind of verbal tics, he's actually put policy behind it or lawsuits. Or you look at what has happened in Florida in terms of the legislature, and we've been seeing more results of that over the course of this week when it comes to what the school board has been doing, putting into place uh, one of the laws that uh, DeSantis helped shepherd through and knew this morning, Vice President Kamala Harris will be responding to those efforts by the school board, adding a last minute trip to Jacksonville to her itinerary today. It is in direct response to the state's newly approved standards for teaching black history. One of the requirements for middle school students is to include, quote, how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Now, Harris forcefully condemned that new curriculum on Thursday. Just yesterday in the state of Florida, they decided middle school students will be taught that enslaved people benefited from slavery. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us, and we will not stand for it. 
Well, CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now live from the White House. Priscilla, I, I thought this was fascinating last night because this clearly wasn't a pre-scheduled trip, uh, at least from the time that we usually expect a vice president or a presidential trip. This happened fairly quickly. The decision was made to send the vice president down or for the vice president to go down herself. Tell us about the backdrop here of why this happened. And it's also not the first time that this has happened, Phil. Vice President Harris also went to Tennessee uh, following controversy that happened in the legislature there. So this is part of the ongoing trips over the course of the summer that the vice president has made to highlight areas where uh, the White House and Democrats see Republican attacks against what they call the freedoms like abortion and now also education. Now, again, this is the first Biden administration official to go to Florida since those controversial standards were uh, approved. And it is an opportunity for the vice president to talk about uh, what you heard there in condemning these standards, fiercely criticizing them, and also what she said earlier this week at that same event, calling it, quote, revisionist history. Now, again, to remind viewers, these are standards that would teach students how slaves developed skills that could be applied for personal benefit and then also uh, touches on massacres and quote, acts of violence perpetrated against and by African-Americans. This, again, has received fierce criticism. And it is an opportunity, again, for Vice President Harris to go and highlight the disagreements that the White House has with this and talk with civil rights leaders, parents and teachers. Yeah, it's another example of them, uh, you know, moving quickly to try to capitalize on something like this. Priscilla, on another topic this morning, the White House is also announcing a new commitment from artificial intelligence companies Uh, about the future of this technology. What have they agreed to? Well, this is really a technology that they're paying very close attention to, and it's just the latest measure that they have taken. So they are going to be meeting, and importantly, President Biden will be meeting with executives of companies you'll recognize, Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, Meta, all of them, to talk about AI, its emergence as a technology, and the voluntary commitments that they will make to make it safer and more trustworthy. Now, This is, among those measures, an opportunity for them to allow outside experts to test systems before releasing to the public and could pave the way for the government to get more involved in the future. Now, of course, these are voluntary commitments, but the government has been moving toward executive actions. We could see some of those come later this summer. Uh, And again, President Biden will be meeting with these top executives later this afternoon. So we'll expect to hear more from him on this, but clearly a priority for this White House, which has spent a lot of this year focusing on artificial intelligence. Yeah, much of it behind the scenes now becoming very public. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you. And happening overnight, the deadline, it came and went for the former president's team to respond to the target letter from special counsel Jack Smith. CNN has learned that Jack Smith's investigation continues. He's lining up witnesses to speak with investigators in the election interference probe. And at least one former Trump attorney is among them. Here's what Trump said about a potential indictment last night. All of a sudden, I hear they want to indict me on this one. And why didn't they do it two years ago? Why didn't they do it like when it would would have been, you know, timely. But there is no timely. They did it because it's election interference. They did it right in the middle of my campaign. With us now is CNN's Caitlin Polance. Uh, So, Caitlin, what are we to make of the fact that uh, Jack Smith is still talking to witnesses? He's still scheduling interviews. Where does the investigation stand? 
Well, Abby and Phil, it's a great question. I mean, where we are right now is that the investigators are moving fast on a lot of different fronts. That is what appears to be happening here. They're telling Donald Trump uh, that he's very likely to be indicted, sending him that target letter, and then also scheduling these witness interviews. The ones that we know of so far is that there is a former Trump lawyer who's scheduled to come in next month to sit for an interview. And then also Bernie Carrick, uh, a man who was very close to Rudy Giuliani, who was working on that effort to gather election fraud and to come up with plans after the election for Donald Trump. Carrick is trying to schedule an upcoming interview, and the special counsel's office also want documents from him. And he's been very, uh, he's pushed back on a lot of inquiries for records that he has in his possession when Congress asked for them, uh, when people in a civil lawsuit asked for them. And so that is a track of the investigation that still exists. Now, the thing that when you look at this, it doesn't all mean that the special counsel's office has one case and one case alone related to January 6th that they're working on. They could potentially be bringing an indictment against Donald Trump and then have other pieces fall into place after that or have other inquiries that they continue to pursue, just like they're doing in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, where they indicted Donald Trump and his co-defendant and then continued to cut subpoenas uh, and also sent a target letter to another person. Um, Caitlin, it was kind of a wild day uh, at the court yesterday, um, which for somebody who doesn't think that the court is all that exciting, me, uh, you, on the other hand, disagree with that every single day and make clear <laughs> to me that that's exciting. the case. Um, but but <laughs> it included uh, the special counsel sitting down with Will Russell, the former Trump aide. What do we know about what he was asked and what happened yesterday at court? Yeah. Well, Phil, it was a busy day yesterday at court. The grand jury was in and they had work to do. They were not hearing from Donald Trump as he had the opportunity to go in and talk. But they did hear from Will Russell, this personal aide to him, a man who never testified uh, to the congressional committee. As far as we know, we have no transcript of his interview there. But the special counsel's office had questions for him at this late stage in this investigation and questions about interactions he had with Donald Trump while Donald Trump was still in office, he was a person who worked for the White House at the end of the administration. Those questions were so aggressive uh, that it essentially derailed him answering. His lawyer came in and there was a standoff uh, that made his lawyer late to go to another hearing for another client in the same building. A judge took notice of this uh, and was quite flustered, didn't know what to do, brought the prosecutors in and talked to them. You never see that in court where the special counsel's office is called out of the grand jury to talk to a judge, but still a lot of questions around what's going on there exactly and how valuable Will Russell is as a witness. That's super interesting. Those questions about executive privilege or speak to executive privilege could tell us a little bit something about where this is heading. Caitlin, thank you very much as always. Well, overnight, a new warning from the head of the CIA. He says Russia could be plotting to attack civilian ships and blame Ukraine. And a U.S. soldier is now considered AWOL. After bolting into North Korea, we'll take you live to the Pentagon for the latest developments and what we're hearing now from his mother. The mother of a U.S. soldier who bolted into North Korea on Tuesday is talking about her son's disappearance. I just want my son back. I just want my son back. Get my son home, get my son home, and pray, pray that he comes back. 
Now, Pentagon officials say that her son, Army Private Travis King, was supposed to be on a flight from South Korea to the United States, but instead he went on a DMZ tour and sprinted into the North Korean side. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live over at the Pentagon this morning for us. Natasha, so what are officials saying right now about King's status? Well, Abby, right now his status officially is listed as absent without leave or AWOL, essentially meaning that he is away without permission from his service in the military. And that's really about all they can say at this point about his status, because they don't even know really his condition at all or whether he's dead. Uh, So what we have learned from the administration is that they have not been able, of course, to speak to the North Koreans about Travis King's status. The U.S. has reached out to the North Koreans multiple times to try to get a sense where exactly he is, where he's being held, and, of course, the kind of condition that he is in. But uh, as has been uh, the routine throughout the entirety of the Biden administration, the North Koreans have simply not responded to uh, U.S. outreach. Uh, We are learning a little more about what unfolded here, which is that Travis King, he was supposed to board that flight from Seoul back to you, back to the U.S. to Fort Bliss in Texas, where he was actually going to be administratively separated from the U.S. Army, essentially removed from the military altogether because of assault charges that he had faced in South Korea. But instead of getting on that plane, he went on this tour of the DMZ. And at that point, he bolted across the demarcation line into North Korea. He was uh, detained by North Korean guards who then hurried him into a van. So now U.S. officials obviously trying to figure out what his motivation would be. The Army Secretary said that he was likely concerned about the kind of punishment he may have been facing back in the United States. But U.S. officials still really scratching their heads here about what would have made a U.S. citizen cross into one of the most hostile countries on earth, Abby. Yeah, it continues to be quite the perplexing story. Natasha, thank you. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. seemed to rewrite history while he was on Capitol Hill yesterday. In my entire life, and why I'm under oath, in my entire life, I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and uh, and, uh, and uh, Black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. We're going to have a lot more on this heated hearing and RFK's claims. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Congressional Democrats grilling Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Capitol Hill yesterday. Keep in mind, a long-shot Democratic candidate for president. He testified at a hearing on censorship. He was questioned about his past comments implying Jews had more freedom during the Holocaust than unvaccinated Americans did during the pandemic. CNN's Eva McKen is in Washington. And Eva, it was uh, a contentious hearing, to say the least. What'd you see? Yes, indeed, Phil. Fireworks, indeed. Listen, Democrats tried to shut this down altogether. They wrote a letter to Republican leadership in the wake of Kennedy's controversial comments, asking them to rescind his invitation. They tried to bring the hearing into executive session so it wouldn't play out in this public way, all to no avail. Let's look at how it all went down. 
Democratic presidential candidate and spreader of vaccine misinformation, Robert Kennedy Jr., invited to testify on Capitol Hill. Don't if, misuse if, if, my it's words. It's the witness's time. Do not censor the witness. I'm not censoring the witness. I'm not censoring the witness. He's still talking. In a testy hearing on censorship, with Kennedy telling the committee his views are protected speech. The First Amendment was not written for easy speech. It was written for the speech that nobody likes you for. I was censored not just by the Democratic administration, I was censored by the Trump administration. Democrats accused Republican leadership of giving Kennedy's dangerous rhetoric a platform in Congress. That's not just supporting free speech. They have co-signed on idiotic, bigoted messaging. There's, it's a conscious choice. Regarding Kennedy's blatant lies, where he said, COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and, uh, and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. Now Kennedy brazenly claims, I'm under oath in my entire life. I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. I have spent my life fighting my professional career, fighting for Israel. But the CEO of the American Jewish Committee called his prior remarks deeply offensive and incredibly dangerous. Kennedy repeatedly claimed he didn't say things that are in fact on camera. I've never been any vaccine, but everybody in this room probably believes that I have been because that's the prevailing narrative. I have never told the public avoid vaccination. But Kennedy has attacked safe vaccines, including the COVID-19 vaccine, and promoted false claims like childhood vaccines can lead to autism and that HIV was caused by vaccine research, even saying this on a 2021 podcast. I see somebody on a hiking trail with a carrying a little baby, and I say, I'm better not get them vaccinated. Tweet from Mr. Kennedy. Another key driver for the GOP-led hearing is to call out what they deem was social media censorship of a damning Hunter Biden story. This was illegal government censorship to protect and prop up Joe Biden on the eve of the 2020 election. But Democrats argue misinformation is the larger threat. They want to force social media companies to promote conspiracy theories because they think that's the only way their candidate can win the 2024 election. Now, despite some of Kennedy's outlandish claims, he still does enjoy some support. In the latest Quinnipiac poll, he's at 14 percent among Democrats and likely Democratic voters. Uh, Still, it's going to be quite difficult for him as he takes on President Biden in the Democratic primary, Phil. All right. Eva McKen, thank you. And let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honing and national political reporter for the Associated Press, Michelle Price. Michelle, Republicans seem hell-bent on elevating RFK Jr. I think that seems the takeaway from this hearing, not just because of the uh, censorship accusations, but just politically. That 14 percent that Eva was talking about, a lot of that is name recognition. A lot of that is nostalgia among Democrats for the Kennedy name. Uh, But this is someone who has this long history of outlandish, dangerous, uninformed statements, and he's being elevated by Republicans because he might hurt Biden. Yeah, it's unclear what 
political benefit there is to giving him this platform. I mean, the entire purpose of this hearing purportedly was to examine uh, censorship on these on these tech platforms. You know, his message is getting out there. The video of it was published by a newspaper. And at the end of the day, this hearing did not examine what these tech policies are, but it was an examination of RFK's comments, which Republicans and Democrats said that they disagreed with and found very objectionable. Do you feel like Democrats... The interesting thing about the, the hearing itself, we knew it was going to be a political food fight, right? That, that was uh, kind of a given to some degree. And I think Democrats have made very clear that they didn't want RFK up there to begin with. But if he was going to be there, they were going to attack him uh, based on his past statements. But do you feel like this has a tangible impact on the Democratic primary to the extent it is a thing that exists at this point? I mean, it's unclear. It's still early to see are those poll numbers going to change? He has a very famous last name, especially in New Hampshire. There's a lot of proximity to Boston. It's unclear how how this is going to land as as this continues. But this is a long-shot campaign. He's going up against an incumbent president. And again, I mean, his comments, uh, you know, they speak for himself, and he has a long history of offensive comments here, that it's unclear how this could help Mr. Kennedy to have his own comments shown so publicly. I don't know how he's become this sort of martyr for censorship. I mean, here's a guy who's in national media all the time. He has millions and millions of views on various social media sites. He just testified in Congress. I think he's mischaracterizing what censorship is. The government has not shut him down. To the contrary, our Congress just gave him a platform. And I think, look, I I believe very broadly in the First Amendment. And I think the solution is somewhat what we saw yesterday. We saw men and women in Congress pushing back and fact-checking him. And and if I can, you know, Eva's package just there, I think exposed some of the mistruths. That's, you know, they, they say the remedy for bad speech is more speech. And, and I think that's how this is playing out. Ellie, can I, there was a, we've talked a little bit about this this week. There was another hearing this week where some of the IRS whistleblowers in the Hunter Biden investigation came forward. One of those whistleblowers, Joseph Ziegler, sat down with Jake Tapper uh, yesterday. And he talked about the reason why he decided to blow the whistle, decided to go public uh, and make clear this isn't about the president. This isn't about anything else. It's about the investigation himself, itself. And this is what he said about the investigation. Take a listen. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials as well as other U.S. attorneys. I still think that a special counsel is necessary for this investigation. I'm not here about about Hunter Biden. I'm here about the bigger, bigger picture of all of this. I blew the whistle because I saw inappropriate things being done throughout this investigation. I brought facts. I brought things that had happened as I recalled them to Congress. Now, the U.S. attorney, David Weiss, has made clear that he believed he had the ultimate authority, has pushed back on what the whistleblowers have said. But those are very specific and very damaging claims that have been made under oath. Yeah, I think both of the whistleblowers who we've seen here, uh, I don't question their motives. And I think they're, they're to be taken seriously. I think some of the things they're saying are concerned to me. Some are not. This question over was what was the scope of David Weiss, the U.S. attorney's authority. Both David Weiss and Merrick Garland have said he was given complete blank check. He could have gone wherever he wanted. And to me, those are two very credible people. David Weiss was a Trump appointee. He had Democratic support. Merrick Garland, for all the criticisms I've lodged against him, has been an absolute truth teller, an absolute straight shooter. But I think the the most interesting allegation that does need to be looked into further is this claim that certain avenues of investigation were cut off. Because as a prosecutor, you're supposed to take your leads wherever they go. You're supposed to follow them wherever they may go. And if it's the case that somebody said, no, 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 let's not look there. Let's not pull, let's not push too strongly on that, 
then we need to know that. And I think the whistleblowers need to be heard on that. Do you think that this ends with Garland or the uh, U.S. attorney here coming forward publicly and explaining what happened? It sounds like the, you know, after uh, Hunter Biden is supposed to be in court next week to appear on these misdemeanor tax charges uh, that he's facing, then the U.S. attorney is actually free to appear in Congress. And it sounds like it's very likely he will be there and be answering some of these questions. Yeah, it seems inevitable at this point to some degree. Yeah, uh, and, perhaps, and necessary. And yeah, perhaps worthwhile. I mean, I do think, uh, you know, this is different from like an investigation into a former or current president, but there's a lot of public interest in it. So I, I, I suspect that we'll hear something in the future. Michelle and Ellie, thank you both yes, very much. Well, more on the news breaking overnight. Russia continuing its attacks on Ukraine's southern ports, destroying tons of grain. We're going to take you live to Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome back. These were some words that you should probably listen to, at least raise some alarm bells when I heard them yesterday. CIA Director Bill Burns warning that Russia could be preparing for a false flag operation in the Black Sea. Take a listen. We see some very concerning signs of the Russians considering the kind of false flag operations yeah. that, you know, we highlighted in the run up to the war as well. In other words, looking at ways in which, you know, they might uh, make attacks against shipping in the Black Sea and then blaming it or trying to blame it on the Ukrainians. Overnight, Russia targeted a grain warehouse in Ukraine's Odessa region. A military official says two people were hurt. More than 100 tons of peas and barley were destroyed. This is the fourth night of strikes on Ukraine's main port city, and it coincides with Russia's decision to pull out of a critical deal that allowed for the safe export of Ukrainian grain to nations that desperately need it. According to the National Security Council, agricultural infrastructure and 60,000 tons of grain have been destroyed in these attacks. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in Kyiv with us now, and we're also joined by retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson. Alex, I want to start with you. You had been in Odessa uh, for the initial three nights of attacks. There's now a fourth. What actually happened last night? What, when did they come? Yeah, Phil, we just got back to Kyiv. Uh, we were in Odessa for the last few nights during this incredible barrage uh, of Russian strikes. In fact, we were up all night uh, waiting to see whether Russia would indeed carry out a fourth night of these attacks. And now it seems they have. Uh, th this came in the, in the dawn hours. Uh, we did hear some warnings while we were in Odessa that Russia was indeed attacking again, but we were in the city. Uh, we could not hear those strikes. Now we have learned uh, that there were at least seven missiles that attacked an area southwest of Odessa, still in the Odessa region, uh, targeting different types of infrastructure, including food infrastructure. So this speaks to the argument that we've heard from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials that Russia is weaponizing hunger. Now, according to Ukraine, uh, Russia used seven different types of, of cruise missiles to attack grain, war, grain warehouses southwest of the city. They uh, destroyed 100 tons of peas, 20 tons of barley. Uh, this comes after those three nights of very intense strikes using, using both drones and missiles uh, to go after the grain infrastructure, to go after the ports uh, in Odessa and elsewhere. Uh, this is just just speaks to the incredible rising tension in the Black Sea region. Uh, Russia has justified its attacks, saying that they are responding uh, to that attack on the Kerch Bridge that took place on Monday by Ukraine. But it is clear 
that they are going after the food infrastructure. And of course, Phil, this comes after uh, Russia did pull out of that grain deal uh, on Monday. Uh, now, it's, it's not just on land that we are seeing this tension and seeing these strikes, but also in the Black Sea, out at sea, you have both Russia and Ukraine warning each other that they could go after each other's ships. Uh, and now this ominous warning from the CIA director, from the White House, saying uh, that Russia could carry out an attack on civilian ships uh, using this pretext, using this excuse uh, that they believe that any ship going towards Ukraine could be carrying military cargo. Uh, that is the excuse that, that Bill Burns and the White House are now saying uh, Russia could use. At the same time, Ukraine is also saying that they will assume that Russian ships heading to Russian ports in the Black Sea could also be t carrying military cargo and therefore could also be targets they said that uh, those Russian ships uh, could be treated like the Moskva. That is, the, of course, the Black, uh, the Black Sea flagship that was sunk by Ukraine very famously last April. Phil, Abby? Uh, Alex, and we actually have that sound uh, from Bill Burns that you were just talking about. I'm going to play it, but uh, uh, Colonel Anderson, I want you to respond, it, respond to it on the other side. What it resurrected was some deeper questions, which again, you know, have you've seen circulate within the Russian elite since the war in Ukraine began, um, since Putin's war in Ukraine began, asking questions about Putin's judgment, about his relative detachment from events, and from about his indecisiveness. Are you so, uh, Colonel Anderson, look, uh, Putin is in a weakened position, obviously, and is feeling incredibly threatened by what Ukraine has done when it comes to the Kerch Bridge. How uh, do you see this playing out? Well, thank you, Abby. Um, he, clearly, he's desperate. Uh, I think the walls are closing in. He's greatly embarrassed by the Prigozhin mutiny three weeks ago. He was, again, had his nose bloodied by this Kerch Bridge attack. And so he's trying to distract the Russian people uh, let them focus on attacking uh, Ukraine and specifically their infrastructure that supports uh, movement and shipment of grain. Um, and so he's trying to do that, trying to distract world attention. If you think about it, he really only has a couple of levers in which he can pull to motivate the international community. He's got his nuclear weapons arsenal, he's got oil, and now he's attacking food. He's trying to make it painful for the Ukrainians. Just another page out of his playbook. We've seen this before. What we need to do is get more air defense artillery assets down there in Odessa and Mykolaiv. Uh, right now, the only patriots are in the Kiev area. Rightfully, they prioritize their capital. But we've got, uh, we, the United States, has a lot of patriots that are available and I'd also recommend that we send CRAM, the counter-rocket artillery and mortar systems that were used with great effect in Iraq and Afghanistan, because they not only can attack incoming missiles, but they can also attack the low-flying drones that are such a problem, and the, the Ukrainians have been struggling to try to defend. General Anderson, I apologize for mistitling uh, you there, but my apologies. <laughs> um, I, I do want to, to ask General Anderson, uh, Alex and the team have, have done a great job, not just for reporting on the ground, but also reporting uh, on cluster munitions, the decision to send them, that they had arrived. Alex had been talking uh, to commanders that confirmed that first. Your sense uh, from your experience on what effect these will have now that they're being utilized? 
Well, I, I will tell you that they're well, very effective. The, the and I, I think that we're trying to do is trying to use them uh, as a bridging strategy until they can get more ammunition over there, quite frankly, because they know that using cluster munitions has a lot of uh, attendant problems. The dud rate is about 2.3%. Um, now, Russians are using cluster munitions. Their dud rate is 40%, but that speaks to the manufacturing capability of the United States and NATO. But, but nevertheless, they're going to have a residual problem, uh, an enduring problem of cleaning up a battlefield because they know that there's going to be cluster munitions out there that could potentially harm the civilian population. Now, my understanding is the Ukrainians are targeting unpopulated areas and using them. Uh, but I think that it, this is a bridging strategy just to get them until they can get more ammunition. I'd also commend the Biden administration for living up to the deal. They said that they'd get cluster munitions within a week to the Ukrainians, and they did that. Alex, you were saying? Yeah, I, I think there really is a debate, Phil, over how effective uh, these munitions can be. And, and the U.S. is certainly waiting to, to see. Um, I did speak with a general last week who is in charge of much of the Southern Front who says that they will have a radical impact. And you can, you'll also speak to some analysts who say you really have to find the right target for cluster munitions to be effective. You know, larger groupings of soldiers, of, of uh, weaponry and, and machinery and, and that kind of thing. But, but I think the general is absolutely right. This is, for the U.S., certainly a bridging strategy. It's filling a gap where there is a real shortage uh, of the more standard artillery rounds. And, and Phil and Abby, right now, this is very much an artillery fight. No question. Alex Marquardt, retire, retired Army Brigadier General Steve Anderson. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And we have new reporting on the Gilgo Beach murders. Why investigators believe that the victims may have been killed inside of the suspect's home while his family was out of town. And 27 years later, are investigators finally closing in on Tupac's killer? What officials just took from a witness's home? Coming up. Police took computers, tablets, and hard drives from a home that they searched near Las Vegas as part of their investigation into Tupac Shakur's long unsolved murder. CNN has obtained a search warrant naming Dwayne Davis, also known as Cafe D, as a target of Monday's search. Property records show that the home belongs to his wife, and the rap icon was gunned down back in 1996 near the Las Vegas Strip. Cafe D says that he saw it all happen, but police never charged or arrested anyone for that murder. CNN's Chloe Melas is here with us. Chloe, this is so interesting uh, that this has come up again after all these years. What do we know about what they were trying to look for potentially in this search. So good morning to both of you. And I think that the question on everyone's minds right now are, and on the minds of the family of Tupac Shakur, the brother of Tupac speaking to Sarah Seidner last night on CNN is, what took so long? 27 years later, and Dwayne Keith Davis's wife's home, uh, a search warrant taking place this week. They took five computers, laptops, iPads, tablets, USB hard drives, journals, even a magazine, a Vibe magazine that had Tupac on the cover. Now, what is so interesting about this is that Dwayne Keith Davis has been open in the press, in the media, even repeatedly. writing a book repeatedly saying right. that he witnessed the shooting that night in 1996. We have a little bit of an interview that he did with BET many years ago. Take a listen. You said the shots came from the back. Big Dre, Orlando. Who shot Tupac? They came from the cold of the streets. It just came from the back seat, bro. 
So remember, Tupac Shakur was driving in a car with record label executive Suge Knight in Las Vegas after they had just seen a boxing match. And that's when that white Cadillac infamously pulled up in front of them and shots were fired out of the back. So Dwayne Keith Davis has always said that he saw it, he knows who did it, but he was never going to say who did it. Um, So there's been a lot of speculation over the years, but why now search the home of his wife and take items that belong to him? So it'll be interesting to see how this develops and could it lead to a potential arrest? Wow. Yeah. Uh, Big story there. Chloe Malas, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, tonight, the U.S. women's national soccer team will make their 2023 World Cup debut. A preview ahead. And it is officially Barbenheimer Day. A viral marketing campaign is driving fans to see both movies this weekend. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The top-ranked U.S. women's national soccer team is set to make its World Cup debut in New Zealand tonight against Vietnam. The team is going for its third straight World Cup title. And while they're ranked number one, analysts say the cup is still very much up for grabs. Superstars Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe are returning to the field this year. And it will be Rapinoe's fourth and final World Cup. She announced plans to retire at the end of the Major League Soccer season. The team is also sporting 14 rookies. Team USA takes the field against Vietnam tonight at 9 p.m. So excited. It's kind of it's like, like bizarre the end how... of an era for Megan Rapinoe yeah, no, it absolutely leaving is. The field, but it's going to be an awesome game and an awesome World Cup. This game, I don't think is going to be awesome just because the U.S. is going to win by like 30, um, which I guess is awesome to some degree, but this tournament is going to be insane. The talent is very, very high level. And another major soccer debut tonight, Argentinian legend Lionel Messi is set to play his first match with Major League Soccer's Inter Milan, and he'll do it in front of a sellout crowd. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live outside the stadium in Fort Lauderdale this morning, and Carlos, South Florida is very clearly ready for Messi. Oh, that's exactly right, Abby and uh, Phil. Good morning. So Inter-Miami has gone from the worst league in Major League Soccer to the center of the eyes of the sporting world. The moment, the hype, the anticipation, it's all finally here. And fans from across the world are ready for Messi. At Inter-Miami's stadium and training facility, fans have camped outside for days to try and get a glimpse of Lionel Messi. I've been an Inter-Miami fan for a long time, ever since the club was founded. His first practice with the team wasn't open to the public and drew journalists from all over the world. The anticipation of Messi also drawing more police and security at the stadium where Inter-Miami plays. I'm excited to see him. I always wanted to see him, me and my little brother. So we wanted to see him for a long time and that's why I'm here. Signs of excitement are all over Miami, from murals of Messi to billboards with his image, welcoming Messi not only to South Florida, but to Major League Soccer. The average ticket for Inter-Miami's first match with Messi against Cruz Azul is $423, up over 1,000% since June when Messi announced he was coming to the U.S. The average listed price for Inter-Miami's entire season increased 700% and fans are traveling nearly 600 miles on average to see Messi make his debut. One the year he was president. An expert on branding and marketing, Florida International University business professor Gustavo Mosquera says the global brand that is Messi supercharges the team and the league's growth. In terms of sales, 
they have been growing in terms of followers, in terms of engagement, in terms of uh, jerseys worn, in terms of fans, that's great. But in terms of community, have you ever sold entirely, completely the stadium? According to Apex Marketing Group, Messi's trip to Publix, a popular Florida-based supermarket chain, netted the company millions in free publicity after photos and videos of him shopping went viral on social media. They've done about uh, the value to date, uh, as of this morning, about six and a half million in viral equivalent brand value that we've been able to measure. And that's across the forms of TV, radio, all social media. Of course, uh, Messi stands to make tens of millions of dollars off his contract here with Inter Miami. His deal reportedly, uh, reportedly includes equity in the team. Now, part of the attention going into tonight's match is whether Messi is going to start tonight or whether he's going to come off the bench as a substitute. The 36-year-old, he's only been in town for about a week. He's only had one practice with the team, and he still has to get to know his new teammates. Again, right now, the anticipation, the hype, everyone out here is ready to go. And it should be an exciting and a historic night. Abby and Phil? You know, Carlos, the day will come when I will say enter Miami instead of enter Milan when I talk about this team. Uh, today was not that day. I appreciate you picking me up. Big day, big night for you guys down there. Thanks, buddy. And the good news is that Messi doesn't have to worry about all the publicity. He's pretty used to that. Yeah. But CNN This Morning continues right now. Investigators think the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer may have committed the murders in his own home. Now that we have actual DNA, we can compare it to other crime scenes that may have occurred in other locations. In each instance of those three cases, his family was out of town and that he would have control. Special counsel has been scheduling additional witness interviews with people they've never spoken with before. They are absolutely worried about the fact that no one else has received a target letter. We always have an ongoing investigation. This indictment can come at any moment. Are we now closer to finding out who killed Tupac Shakur? Las Vegas police have executed a search warrant at a home in Henderson, Nevada. I was asking what happened. He responded to me with the now infamous words, F you. This theory hasn't been looked into for 27 years. Why? Conspiracy theorists taking center stage, RFK Jr. denying he said what we've heard him say. In my entire life, I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. I can't think of someone who's espoused such anti-Semitic ideas getting this kind of a platform. This is the movie event of the year, the twin premiere of Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm so happy we've made like a big summer blockbuster. I'll be going to see Barbie 100%, I can't wait to see it. Barbie first, Oppenheimer for lunch, and then, and then a Barbie chaser. If I could gift any audience member something, you are doing great because you are you and that is enough. That's what I would do. And a very good Friday morning to you. A Barbie chaser actually Barbie sounds chaser. great. It is Friday, yeah. so we are ready for that. Yeah, no, this is good. Can we contextualize this day real quick before we get into the real hard news of things? Uh, it's Friday. Yeah. Uh, the theaters matter are important. It's a summer blockbuster, like you. with no comparison. U.S. Women's uh, National Team plays in the World Cup tonight. Messi, Messi is here. Later tonight is what? Guys, it is a good day. A lot of great stuff going on, but we have a lot of news as well. We're going to start, though, with a disturbing story developing overnight. That is the Gilgo Beach serial 
killer investigation. A source telling CNN that investigators now believe that the suspect actually murdered those victims inside of his own home, luring them there. And the reason they think that is because the women disappeared when his wife and children were out of town. A crime scene investigators dressed in white jumpsuits and blue rubber gloves, you can see them there, have been scouring the house on Long Island in New York. We're told they've been meticulously combing for any trace of evidence that may be linked to the victims. CNN's Gene Casares is here with the new details. Gene, what are we learning at this We've point? We've got a lot of information. First of all, investigators were able to put together the travel records of his wife during those years, 2009, 2010, and they found that she was out of town every time one of those girls went missing. And so it was believed that, and it's been a working theory for quite a while now, that he committed the murders in the home because they say he would have control there. He Remember, they were bound with duct tape and belts in burlap, and he would have the ability to do all of that. Um, it also explains the four hairs from his wife that are found on the victims or on the duct tape, because that is highly unusual right there. Now, they didn't have this ability in 2009, 2010, but there's even more, because they were able to find out his burner phone number, his personal cell number, and the victim's cell number. And in recent years, they've been able to triangulate through the cell phone tower data those three numbers on the days and before the days, even after the days that they went missing. And they found that the burner phones were used to contact victims' phones in New York City. And then the burner phones and the victims' phones together, with the same cell tower data, went to Massapequa, where he lived, and that when the girls went missing, their cell phones were in the Massapequa area. And they were triangulating all of this in recent years. And that comes to this working theory. Now, we want you to listen. Last night with Aaron Burnett, the Suffolk County Sheriff spoke out on the home and the search that they're doing for over a week now for forensics. Here's what he said. Every piece of evidence that could be gathered, whether it's from the storage containers or from his home, could be valuable not only to the murders that he's currently being charged with, but more importantly, if we can connect them to other murders, whether they were in um, uh, New York or other locations. Now, here's the reality that you have to remember. This is 2009, 2010. They're searching that home for forensics. And, you know, they're going to they have to search every nook and cranny. They've got to lift up the carpeting. They've got to look at the crevices of the mattresses. Normally, you look in the drains for something. But I think for the duration of time, that may be difficult. But while this is going on, the wife of Rex Hewerman has filed for divorce. Uh, Aisha Ellerup filed for divorce on Thursday. We want to read to you a statement from her attorney. He says, as you can imagine, our client and her family are going through a devastating time in their lives. The sensitive nature of her husband's arrest is taking an emotional toll on the immediate and extended family, especially their elderly family members. And remember... The whole family is out in Long Island, and the home that is possibly the primary crime scene is the home that Rex Heuermann was raised in. That's the home he was raising his family in. And there were two children at that time in 2009, 2010. May have been out of town also with their mother, but... I mean, the secrets seem to be really piling up. I mean, we should remind folks, they found that trove of weapons in a hidden part of the home. There's just so much there that they are now potentially discovering. And Rex Heuermann is pleading not guilty. His attorney is saying, look, this is a circumstantial case. And they're saying it's not weak.
So we have to see how it develops. Jean Casares, really fascinating reporting on all of that. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Well, also this morning, that deadline, it's come and it has gone for Donald Trump to respond to the special counsel's January 6th target letter. The grand jury in D.C. did convene yesterday and heard from Trump aide Will Russell. We're told he was asked about interactions he had with Trump while in office. Now, Trump and his team are waiting to see if, if and when a potential indictment will come over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In the meantime, CNN has learned that the special counsel is still lining up witness interviews. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Um, why? Why are they still lining up witness interviews if it seems like or appears like uh, an indictment may be coming soon? Because to use a phrase that prosecutors love, the investigation is ongoing. You are allowed to continue calling witnesses to continue using a grand jury even after you return an indictment, so long as there's some other aspect outside the scope of that indictment, so long as you're still investigating some other person or some other charge. And so even if there's witness uh, testimony scheduled for mid-August, late August, we are on the clock right now. This indictment could come at any moment. What do you make of this reporting that we talked about that at a hearing just yesterday, it, it was basically revealed that the questioning in the special counsel's grand jury uh, was touching on special uh, things that might have been construed to be executive privilege. At this late stage in the investigation that they're pressing a witness close to Trump about things that that witness's lawyer thinks might be executive privilege, what does that tell you? So it tells us for sure that they were asking the witness, Mr. Russell, about his conversations with Donald Trump. That's the only thing that executive privilege could even arguably apply to. Now, it sounds like the witness tried to invoke executive privilege, say those are my conversations as a White House staffer with Donald Trump. He will lose that, given the track record. Donald Trump and everyone around him who has tried to invoke executive privilege throughout this case has lost, because generally speaking, executive privilege is not going to take precedence in a criminal case. But would case. that have to be litigated? And was there so time? there was reporting that it actually went in front of a judge yesterday. This is all grand jury, so it would be secret off the record. But our excellent reporters did, did report that this was a dispute in front of the judge. We don't know how it came out. But really what's important here is this is another person who was well-placed in the White House, not a well-known name, but you can have a witness who's super important, who's maybe a lower-level aide. As long as they saw something or heard something, you're a witness and your information could be invaluable to prosecutors. I think that's the piece of this that uh, I've been struck by. The January 6th committee did a, a voluminous investigation talking to so many people and a very significant report to go along with the hearings itself. They never spoke to Will Russell. Yeah. And yet the special counsel has. What does that tell you about where the investigation is? Well, so it's interesting. It tells me this is the first real indication. I think it's a great point that DOJ has gone beyond the January 6th committee. And it's not at all surprising, by the way, because they've had way more time. And remember, prosecutors have way more powerful enforcement tools than the committee. The committee did an outstanding job putting the base in place. And it's clear now that Jack Smith has gone beyond that. And remember, I mean, this is why Congress at the time, they were pretty frustrated because they felt like DOJ wasn't pursuing this investigation with those investigative tools that they have at their disposal. Ellie, thanks again, as always. All right. Another day of extreme heat is shaping up this Friday. About 100 million Americans will be under heat alerts, facing oppressive record high temperatures from the southwest into the deep south. Powerful winds in North Georgia knocked out this gym wall on Thursday. Storms in multiple states brought some relief from the heat, but thousands of people remain without power or air conditioning this morning. Let's go to meteorologist Derek Van Dam. Derek, let's talk about the cooling, uh, primarily through the lane of when are we going to see some? (laughs) Well, if you're in Dallas or Oklahoma City or Little Rock this morning, today is your day. You're living it in real time, but like a puff of smoke in the wind, it's gone. Just like that. 
the below average temperatures evaporate literally before your eyes and get replaced with a lot of oranges and reds. We all know what that means, above average temperatures. So today, enjoy it while you can. Dallas, 94, Oklahoma City, 87. You're actually below your average high. It's the middle of July, so it's still warm, but the heat returns by the end of the weekend and into the early parts of next week. As long as this very stubborn heat dome that we've been talking about is firmly entrenched across the deep south and into the southwest, we will continue to talk about the record-breaking temperatures. 100 million Americans under some sort of heat alert stretching from Florida all the way to the southwest. Look at the triple-digit heat from Vegas to Bakersfield, Palm Springs and Death Valley, and Phoenix. You continue with your record-breaking streak with temperatures above 110, and this extended forecast well into next week calls for above-average temperatures. But look where it builds across the upper plains and into portions of the Midwest. Now, transitioning to those storms that Phil mentioned a moment ago, check out what happened across Middle Tennessee yesterday. Trees knocked down, we had power lines snapped like uh, twigs, and that is amongst uh, several dozen reports of wind that just created this swath of damage across portions of uh, the southeastern U.S. We have another line of thunderstorms that continues to roll through. We have a thunderstorm watch across northeastern Oklahoma. But focusing in on what's happening right now throughout Memphis and southwestern Tennessee, we have a flood uh, warning in place. And uh, there's our flood threat for today. Can't mention, I uh, forget to mention the northeast. Of course, they've been dealing with heavy rain the past couple of weeks. More chances of flash flooding across Vermont, New Hampshire today as well. Back to you. Right, Derek, I feel like we pulled a, a sliver of good news uh, out of you at the beginning, which is I a shift from the week. I, I appreciate that. It never ends. <laughs> Derek Van Dam, thanks, Derek. never ends. Thanks, Derek. Pleasure. And Americans from coast to coast, they're now bracing for Barbenheimer mania this weekend. <laughs> the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. Yeah. Principal among them, Phil Mattingly. Bracing. <laughs> like we're bracing for it. Like, no, you're bracing for the heat. We are and bracing the stores. for Now we're bracing for Barbenheimer. These two potential blockbusters hit the box office today, Barbie and Oppenheimer. It could not be more different movies, by the way. Analysts predict that they could rake in more than $200 million this weekend. That would make it the highest grossing movie weekend of the year. CNN's Jason Carroll is live outside of a movie theater right here in New York City. Jason, there is a lot of hype around Barbenheimer and the return to theaters after years of COVID. People are really itching to go back, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of hype and also a lot of hope, as you say, a lot of hope that these two films can really do something to help an industry that's really, really been ailing. The only question that a lot of fans that we've been talking to are having is, which one to see first? Probably not much of a surprise when one hears something odd has come out of Hollywood. But now there's this. The world will remember this day. That's not a clip from a real movie. It's a fan-driven mashup of two. And it's the answer to anyone out there trying to figure out what to do when two potentially blockbuster films open on the same day. Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. And Oppenheimer. This is a matter of life and death. The Internet's answer is to see both. Barbenheimer. I saw Barbie in the morning. I saw Oppenheimer in the afternoon. How did that go? It was the right way to do okay. it. I think you see Barbie afterwards as well. Yeah, okay. Yes, again. A so Barbie it's like sandwich. A Barbie chaser. 
There are TikToks, tweets, and T-shirts, even a Barbenheimer Wikipedia page promoting what has become a viral marketing phenomenon, pushing moviegoers to try both. So I see you've got your Barbie pink on. So the question is, will you see Barbie and Oppenheimer or just one? Oh yeah, both, both, both. We kinda, yeah, we kind of like the idea of walking into Oppenheimer with full pink, so. It's the bar- Barbenheimer experience. Both films are worlds apart. You guys ever think about dying? On the one hand, you have director Greta Gerwig's <laughs> fantasy comedy about a doll experiencing an existential crisis and has to go to the real world to resolve it. The company behind it, Warner Brothers Discovery, parent company of CNN. It's happening, isn't it? And on the other, you have Christopher Nolan's biographical thriller for Universal about a physicist credited for creating, well, you know. I mean, I'll be going to see Barbie 100%. I can't wait to see it. I think it's just great for the industry and for audiences that we have two amazing films by amazing uh, filmmakers coming out on the same day. It's a perfect double bill. I think actually start your day with Barbie, then go straight into Oppenheimer and then Barbie Chaser. Could a double feature about a plastic doll and the so-called father of the atomic bomb breathe much-needed life back into a movie industry hit hard by streaming, disappointing post-pandemic box office, and now actors and writers on strike? I think this is the best thing that's happened to movie theaters in a really long time because it's happening really organically. Also, according to Variety, AMC has reported 40 thousand dollars in ticket sales so far the big test is going to be whether or not fans do a one and done in other words see these films once or will there be repeat uh repeat viewing if that's the case that's the real test of a blockbuster and of course how well these films do on the international market that remains to be seen but so far barbenheimer off to a pretty good start guys back to you i don't know about those repeat double features it seems like quite the commitment, but someone out there is going to do it, I promise you. Jason, thank you. And new this morning, the White House is announcing a major agreement with tech companies as concerns rise over the dangers of artificial intelligence. That's coming up. And breaking overnight, Russia continuing its attacks on Ukraine's southern ports, devastating grain warehouses that are crucial to keeping people fed in developing nations. We're going to discuss with the White House's John Kirby. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Brand new this morning, Vice President Kamala Harris adding a last-minute trip to Jacksonville, Florida, to her itinerary today. It's in direct response to the state's newly approved standards for teaching black history. One of the new requirements for middle school students is to include, quote, how slaves developed skills which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit. Now, Harris forcefully condemned the new curriculum on Thursday. Listen. Just yesterday in the state of Florida, they decided middle school students will be taught that enslaved people benefited from slavery. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us, and we will not stand for it. Well, joining us now is CNN chief political correspondent and host of Inside Politics Weekday, the one and only Dana Vash. Um, Dana, we're going to get to... I'm noticing some pink, which may be thematic uh, to some degree. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but I do yeah. want to start. I do want to start with the vice president's trip. Abby made a great yeah. point earlier. Um, 
this level of agility is not normal for a White House, but it's something that she has done before. She did it in Tennessee with the Tennessee yeah, three did. lawmakers, doing it again here. Um, what do you make of this, both, I think, broadly for the vice president and on this issue specifically? Well, you both know, because uh, you are excellent reporters, that there is a very deliberate effort that has been going on inside the White House uh, to make sure that there are moments, to find moments for the vice president to, to shine and to make an impact and to stand out uh, when it comes to the just the pure politics going forward in uh, the 2024 campaign. And it is incredibly uh, agile and, and it's spur of the moment to be able to turn on a dime and get uh, the all of the mechanics of the vice presidency up and running and get her down to Florida to make a speech. But it is true that uh, this was one of the, you, I mean, you could just hear it in the soundbite that you played. You could hear the passion, understandably, and the anger. And uh, whether it's this issue, which unquestionably she is going to continue on, uh, or the issue of, of abortion rights, which is one that she's already been deployed on and has for more than a year since the Dobbs decision. Uh, these are the moments that the White House is is genuinely trying to find for her to help her uh, find her footing in some ways, but also to be the, the asset that they need her to be in the 2024 campaign. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And on top of that, there's also the added uh, need for them to start pivoting to the Republican field here. I mean, this is really also about Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. and uh, these culture war kind of laws that he has supported in his state of Florida. He also doubled down yesterday on Bud Light, saying that mm -hmm. uh, he would basically uh, use the state's pension funds to try to put more pressure on Bud Light over their use of a trans uh, um, influencer in an ad mm -hmm. campaign. Ron DeSantis is starting to get much more spotlight on some of these things that used to be centered on Florida, but are now becoming national issues and are controversial for real reasons, just like the, the, the school uh, African-American teaching requirements. Yeah, I mean, and if you sort of take it up a level and just look at it philosophically, uh, what we're used to with regard to uh, Republican ideology, it is still fascinating to me that you have a very prominent governor, obviously somebody who wants to be president of the United States, who continues to use the levers of government to impose uh, ideology and, and philosophy that he believes is important and, and that he believes will be sort of vote generating and illuminating and exciting for Republican voters. And you have that, and then you have other candidates in the race who say, you know what, this, this is not where Republicans should be. They're the more libertarian saying, you shouldn't use the government to push what you want to do. You should bring government out and kind of live and let live. And they are really, really different points of view from within the Republican Party. Dana, can I ask you, just because I know you have a ton of reporting on this always, the most fascinating relationship in Washington, in my view, uh, at least personally, is the former president and the current Speaker of the House. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's some reporting yesterday about what the 
McCarthy may or may not have committed to do related to expunging impeachments. Uh, our amazing Hill team went and basically talked to Republican mm-hmm. members yesterday. I want to pull up a full screen where they're saying, you know, Mike Lawler, I don't really see the purpose. Garrett Graves, I'm not going to take a petition. Andy Harris, I'm concentrating on appropriations. Uh, Chip Roy, this is a new body, so I'd say onward. Tim Burchett, uh, I don't care about that. It doesn't amount to anything. That is a wide array of mm-hmm. the ideological sides of that Republican conference, which makes me more interested in the dynamic between McCarthy and Trump. Behind the scenes, how it works, how transactional it is. What's your sense of things? Transactional is is the perfect word. First of all, that is that is fascinating. I haven't seen it set up like that, like you just did. Mike Lawler that you just put up there, he's one of the more moderate uh, members. He helped Republicans get the majority uh, being elected from New York. And then, of course, you have among the most conservative on the right there. And that tells you everything you need to know. They don't want to deal with what happened in the past. Even uh, those who are among the most fervent of supporters of Donald Trump, maybe maybe the most fervent, are like, okay, let's do this because it'll make him happy. But for the most part, no. And there's so many reasons why they don't want to do it, Uh, not the least of which is it doesn't do anything. You can't, you both know this, you can't expunge an impeachment. Uh, It would just be effectively a sense of Congress, which would be putting everybody on record with their opinion about what happened. And you're putting the moderates in a tough position. And so, That's a long way of answering your question, which is that Kevin McCarthy has, from the beginning of Trump and Trumpism, had a very complicated relationship with him because certainly when Donald Trump was president, he needed him very badly uh, when Kevin McCarthy was the minority leader and needed him even more when he was in that 15-vote race to become the Speaker of the House. And, you know, he has continued to embrace Donald Trump. And they have very much a classic symbiotic relationship. And at this point, probably it seems as though McCarthy might need uh, Trump even more than the reverse. And that is pretty evident in our reporting about these conversations that they're having. Oh, well, we'll say it a little louder for the people in the back. Expungement is not a thing. <laughs> it's yeah. not a thing. Uh, not we a can thing. go down the procedural <laughs> rabbit hole if you want. Nobody in it's the control room does, but, but it's Dana, not a thing. Dana, before you go, though, before you go, though, are you going to see Barbie tonight? Are you headed the to the nails. theaters? Show Let's them, see the nails. The nails. Does it, Let's see them. Does it look like I'm going to see Barbie? Can you see? Okay. Right? I mean, this was, I'm so excited for Barbie. Um, I might have to change before Inside Politics. I might have to change my dress because I might or may not have spilled something while oh. eating in the car on the way here. But don't worry, I have other pink dresses here because I was worried She's about ready. that. And I, I wanted to make you sure. To... You told us that during the break and we weren't going to bring it up. And you're just going to go ahead and do it yourself. I need to be prepared to be full Barbie all day. Dana, I just want to say that. Dana, we know that you're always going to be there for Barbie. Thank you so much for Thanks, being buddy. there for Appreciate us. Appreciate it. Great to see you both. You guys, be sure to watch Dana today on Inside Politics at noon Eastern time You don't ever want to miss that show. There may be a new pink dress. All right, coming up next for us, record heat from Florida to California. Some areas are seeing the highest hospitalization rates since the pandemic. We'll talk to a doctor in Phoenix about just how bad it is next. (music) 
This record extreme heat that is plaguing most of the country just won't let up. Roughly 100 million people now are under heat advisories nationwide. And the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reports that nearly 2,000 record high temperatures have already been broken so far this month. That includes Phoenix, where it's expected to hit triple digits again. The city has been setting records since Monday. Maricopa County officials report at least 18 heat-associated deaths to date, with nearly 70 more under investigation. Now, doctors are saying that they're seeing the highest increase of patients since the pandemic. Joining us now is one of those doctors, the chief clinical officer at Valley Wise Health, Dr. Michael White. Dr. White, thank you for joining us. Uh, you say you've never seen numbers like this since the COVID pandemic. What is the current situation right now at your hospital? You know, certainly throughout Maricopa County, certainly here throughout Phoenix, we, with the extreme heat, we're seeing a number of individuals that are presenting to our emergency departments, you know, with uh, heat-related illnesses. And this is a significant volume of patients that are coming in with these particular issues affecting, you know, all portions of their body, complicating other medical problems, and just more and more people seeking medical care to the point that we are seeing volumes approaching what we did during the last wave of the pandemic. Who, who's, it, who's most at risk uh, in this moment with this type of heat? Certainly, we see those that are most at risk that don't have access to be able to go into environments where they get cooled. So those folks that are unsheltered or homeless or at higher risks just because they don't have that access to be able to get cooled. Also, those folks that, you know, tend to have to work outside. So some of our construction workers, those folks that are working out in that environment on a daily basis, certainly at risk. And then we always worry about those that have underlying medical conditions. Those are very young, that are very old, or have other medical problems such as obesity, diabetes, all of these that can be compounded by heat um, in these just extreme temperatures that we've been facing. Uh, the high in Phoenix today, I'm told, is going to be 115 degrees. It's already 90 degrees right now at four in the morning. Uh, one of the interesting things, it sounds like people are coming in with actual contact burns, like they're touching something and burning themselves. What are you seeing as it relates to that? So we here at Valley Ways Health have the Arizona Burn Center, which is one of the uh, largest burn centers here in the United States. You know, and what we see is, you know, with all of the concrete, all of the materials that, you know, we use for construction for our daily lives, get superheated by the sun. When temperatures uh, reach these 115, 120 degrees, all of that heat is concentrated in these substances that are in direct sunlight. So if for some reason somebody's out, they have some you know, propensity to fall. Either they trip, you know, have um, for unfortunate reason pass out and were to land on this concrete and have exposed skin, what occurs is that exposed skin comes in contact with that searing hot material and they develop contact burns. So those patients are presenting here as well, not only for into our emergency department, but we're taking those folks from other emergency departments across the region so they're able to receive the specialized care that we have here with the center. Oh, that's uh, fascinating, but also rather scary moment. Dr. Yeah. Michael White, thank you for your time. Thank you this morning. All right. Well, Shark Week is here. We will talk to a former elite diver who nearly lost his life in a shark attack, but is still all about shark conservation. That's next. Well, it's why my 
two oldest boys won't talk to me. Shark Week is back, and that's all they care about. It's all most people care about. The 35th edition of the Summer Spectacle kicks off this Sunday on our sister network, Discovery, and features a week-long celebration of one of the most feared and misunderstood creatures on the planet. Our next guest nearly lost his life in a shark attack back in 2009. Now, he's an advocate for conservation. Paul DeGelder traveled to the shark bite capital of the world for a special project. Here's a preview. Florida Florida shark blood in the water. With decreased visibility, the bull sharks instantly become bolder and start to approach in numbers. That's Paul DeGelder right there, and I have a lot of questions for him <laughs> about a lot of things. We have, I have a lot of questions yeah, but, about But I want to start with, um, <laughs> look, you lost a leg, part of your arm, nearly your life, in a shark attack. Um, conservation has now become your thing. You've become uh, such a critical player on this issue. Why? Well, I see it as a transfer of my military service. You know, as an army paratrooper and then a Navy clearance diver, my role and my job is to stand up and protect people that can't stand up and protect themselves. Now I see my role as speaking up for an animal that doesn't have a voice, but I have a great platform, I have a message, and I figure if someone like me, who has nearly lost their life, lost two limbs to a shark, can understand why they're so important and why they need to be saved, then maybe everyone else should be able to as well. I don't know that I would ever go back into the water again after something like that happened. What are we misunderstanding? Are sharks misunderstood? Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people throughout the years, you know, Shark Week's been going for 35 years now. And so I think a lot of people have come over to our side of the fence, but there's still some misconceptions that people think that these are monsters lurking in the ocean that are going to eat your children. And they're just not. They're just sharks living in their home doing sharky stuff. And we just love going into the ocean because it's fun. It's relaxing. Uh, we can have a great time. But we also need to understand that that is where they live. That is where they hunt. And we, as the most intelligent species on the planet, maybe we need to look to ourselves to understand that we need to take actions into our own hands to make sure we stay safe and also we protect the ecosystem. Get out of their homes, maybe. Oh, we don't need so to get out of their homes. I'm in their home all the time. <laughs> you know, it was the one time when I hated sharks that I got attacked and now I work what with happened? them all the time. Can you tell people your story if they're not familiar yeah. with it? Yeah, so I was uh, in a, an elite branch of the Navy called the Clearance Divers. We do uh, underwater and land-based bomb disposal, maritime tactical operations, crazy stuff like that. It's an awesome job. And I was doing a counter-terrorism exercise in Sydney Harbour in Australia, right by the big Navy base we have there. I was swimming from point A to point B on the surface on my back and a 10-foot bull shark came up from underneath me and it, it grabbed me by the back of my right leg and my right hand, which was by my side, all in the same bite. So I beep occasionally. Um, <laughs> and it took me under and it just the pain and the terror, you know, I thought I was going to die. Uh, it removed my hamstring in my hand and then I had to swim back to my safety boat with one hand and one leg through a pool of my own blood. Wow. 
did not think I was going to make it, but my teammates were there and their medical training kicked in. They kept me alive until the paramedics arrived and then I was whisked off to emergency surgery. So very, very lucky and blessed to actually still be here breathing today. I mean, not only did you make it, but you kept your love of the ocean and appreciation for sharks, which I think we're all uh, benefiting from now. Paul DeGelder, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And you can catch Florida shark blood in the water on Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And up next, a U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea. He's now officially considered AWOL. Plus, escalating tensions between the United States and two rivals are prompting the United States to boost its military presence overseas. John Kirby from the White House joins us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, the White House announcing a major agreement with some of the world's leading artificial intelligence companies. Some are committing to putting new AI systems through outside testing before they're publicly released. The companies will all be at the White House later today, and the administration says these commitments will help move toward the, quote, safe, secure, and transparent development of AI technology. Well, joining us now is John Kirby, the White House National Security Council spokesman. Uh, John, good to see you. I want to start on the the AI proposals. I know you guys have been working on uh, this issue uh, and all that comes with it for months behind the scenes, probably even longer. Uh, significant commitments from uh, the biggest companies, biggest players in this space, uh, but there's no enforcement mechanism here, uh, which I understand from an executive branch perspective. Does that concern you about the ability for these companies to deliver on the commitments? The president, in addition to these voluntary commitments, he's committed to working with Congress and he's made it clear that he will work with Congress, uh, in fact, uh, to pursue perhaps an executive order that would help us get towards legislation uh, that will give uh, this these commitments uh, and our ability to hold bad actors accountable a lot more teeth. So this is a this is a good uh, step. It's not the first step we've taken, as you rightly pointed out, but it's the it's a good next step, these voluntary commitments. But that doesn't mean that the president doesn't want to work with Congress on on enforceable legislation, uh, to, again, to help us hold people accountable for proper behavior in the AI ecosystem. Yeah, a significant moment. Uh, much more to come on this. I don't think there's any question about that. Kirby, it's been a while since we've talked. I've been away from the White House for a little bit. So I have like 15 questions around the globe I would like to ask you about, uh, if you don't mind. And I, I want to start with what the CIA director said uh, yesterday related to a potential false flag operation in the Black Sea Uh, He said that he had there were very concerning signs Russia is considering it. I know this is a tactic they've considered throughout the war, but the CIA director is saying very concerning signs. Uh, Is he talking about something specifically that you guys are seeing? Do you feel this is imminent? We do have information that uh, that the the Russians are potentially going to try to attack uh, ships, civilian ships in the Black Sea uh, that could be used for carrying grain uh, out of uh, out of Ukraine. And we the information that we have, Phil, is that they could use sea mines um, and they could also use more kinetic attacks uh, with, say, unmanned uh, surface vehicles to attack uh, ships uh, at, at sea. And we've already seen them now put a post a video. Uh, of them uh, detecting and detonating what they're claiming was a Ukrainian mine. This is classic Russia propaganda, classic uh, uh, an opportunity by them to plant like a false flag to justify, which, of course, there would not be any justification, but to justify military action against civilian shipping. You know, there are uh, U.S. companies, international, multinational companies uh, that have commercial shipping assets in that space. Is the White House, is the administration working with those companies uh, for the safety of their commercial ships. 
We're, we're certainly doing uh, everything we can to in, make sure that the civilian shipping companies, uh, certainly U.S. flagged, understand the risks here now uh, of sailing in the Black Sea, uh, because uh, it, it is very clear that the Russians, uh, we have to assume, have every intention of conducting some sort of attack on, on civilian shipping. So we are, we are obviously working with industry, and so are our allies and partners with their shipping industries as well, so that everybody understands the risks. Um, I want to ask, a U.S. soldier has now been uh, declared AWOL, uh, crossed the border into North, North Korea, was detained. Uh, I know there hadn't been any communication from the U.S. side because the North Koreans haven't responded or allies or conduits. Has that changed? Do we have any igno- idea of where he may be or what his condition is? Sadly, no. Uh, Not for lack of trying. Uh, We're still reaching out uh, and doing the best we can to try to ascertain his whereabouts and his well-being. But sadly, no, we we don't have an update on on Private King. Uh, We're not going to stop. We want to get him home to his family, home to the United States where he belongs. Uh, But we're uh, but we're just not we're not coming into any significant information right now about him. Uh, also in North Korea, a U.S. nuclear submarine uh, arrived in South Korea this week, first time since the 1980s. This had been telegraphed. You guys had talked about it. Uh, North Korea's uh, defense minister responded essentially saying that the deployment may fall under their terms for use of nuclear force. Uh, do you believe that threat is real? We have to take it seriously. Uh, I mean, you know, we th- this is a, a country that continues to develop uh, a, a nuclear arsenal, continues to develop um, uh, ballistic missiles uh, that have ever increasing range. Uh, so, you know, we don't take those comments lightly. Uh, that's why we are, A, have made it clear to Pyongyang that we're willing to sit down without preconditions to denuclearize a peninsula, but B, to make sure that we have in the region sufficient military capability to protect our South Korean allies and, quite frankly, the 38,000 U.S. troops and families that are on the Korean peninsula. And we'll do that. Before I let you go, um, I, I, I've, I've been it's been striking to see the deployment of U.S. military assets into the Middle East over the course of the last week or so. Uh, you have fighter jets. Uh, you have, uh, if I believe correctly, a, a guided missile destroyer. Obviously, there was a Marine unit that was sent over there as well, or that's being deployed over there as well, because of Iran's actions in attempting to seize ships uh, and their maritime actions. I guess my question is, is this in response to what has already happened, or are you seeing information, do you have information that more seizure attempts are planned or this could escalate? Because this is a serious movement of U.S. uh, assets. It's actually an attempt to de-escalate by making sure we have uh, an appropriate amount, and we already do have a lot of military force there, but even more uh, military force to help protect, in this case, maritime shipping. To your first question, Phil, it's really a response to the increase we've seen over recent weeks of Iranian attempted or successful attacks on maritime shipping in the Gulf region. That's what this is a response to, to make sure that we have appropriate military capabilities there in the Gulf region uh, to protect our assets, our allies, our partners, and of course, to protect uh, civilian shipping. That's what we're doing. And if we have to add more, if we have to change that posture, uh, given uh, future tendencies by the Iranian regime, we'll do that too. Do you feel like you'll have to have more? Or do you feel at this point is what has been sent up to this point considered enough for the moment? We're looking at it every day. Uh, right now, we can speak to the deployments we've ordered. I don't know of any uh, future deployments that are in the offing, but we're looking at it every day. And if we have to adjust, we absolutely will. Hopefully, that won't be the case. Uh, but we can't take it for granted that Iran's going to all of a sudden, you know, uh, turn over a new leaf and start to act as a responsible nation in the region. We've got to make sure uh, we can uh, we have the sufficient resources and capabilities at hand uh, to thwart any uh, of their security threats there in the region and beyond. All right. John Kirby, appreciate your time sharing your expertise, sir. Thanks.
You bet. And ahead, more on the news breaking overnight. Russia continuing to weaponize hunger, attacking Ukraine's southern ports and destroying tons of grain. We'll take you live to Ukraine. And 27 years later, our investigators finally closing in on Tupac's killer, what Tupac's brother told CNN about the ramped up investigation. Coming up next. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's Friday, July 21st. We've got a lot of news. We're going to start with a number of different big stories, including this. We're going to take you live to Ukraine, where Russia is relentlessly bombing the world's food supply. And there's dire new warnings from the director of the CIA about alleged plans to attack civilian ships. And also this morning, we're learning new disturbing details in that Gilgo Beach serial killer investigation. A source tells CNN that investigators believe the suspect murdered his victims inside of his own home while his family was out of town. And the Barbenheimer battle begins. America, I know this is the only thing you care about. Two of the summer's most anticipated movies are opening today, and they couldn't be any more different. Our own Sarah Seidner interviewed the stars of Barbie, Margot Robbie and America Ferreira. This hour of sin and this morning starts right now. And we're going to get started with news that just broke on CNN this morning. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby echoing CIA Director Bill Burns and issuing a stark warning that Russia could be preparing for a false flag operation in the Black Sea and adding more details. We do have information that uh, that the, the Russians are potentially going to try to attack uh, ships, civilian ships in the Black Sea uh, that could be used for carrying grain uh, out of uh, out of Ukraine. And we the information that we have, Phil, is that they could use sea mines um, and they could also use more kinetic attacks uh, would say unmanned uh, surface vehicles to attack uh, ships. Well, overnight, Russia weaponizing hunger by launching attacks on grain warehouses in the Black Sea port of Odessa. Those facilities are crucial to keeping people fed in developing nations. The Ukrainian military officials says two people were hurt and more than 100 tons of peas and barley were destroyed. Russia had already desto- destroyed 60,000 tons of grain earlier this week. The UN says it could have fed more than 270,000 people. This was the fourth night of strikes on Ukraine's major port city, and it coincides with Russia's decision to pull out of a critical deal that allowed for the safe export of Ukrainian grain. Now, Kyiv has been struggling to repel this wave of Russian attacks as air defenses really can't cope with the types of missiles that Moscow is now using. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in the Ukrainian capital right now for us. Alex, you were in Odessa for so many of these attacks over the last several days. Uh, What can you tell us about Uh, now the fourth straight night of shelling in Odessa. Well, good morning, Abby and Phil. Uh, These were incredibly destructive. Now, these strikes were just outside of the city. We stayed up all night in Odessa waiting to see whether there would be a fourth barrage in a row. Uh, This set of strikes slightly different than the ones that we'd seen the three previous nights, Uh, these starting around dawn and and going throughout the morning. Uh, Slightly less intense as well in terms of the number of missiles that was used, but still incredibly destructive. What we know from Ukrainian officials, at least seven different types of cruise missiles hitting targets, civilian targets, civilian infrastructure, food infrastructure. Uh, This is exactly what uh, President Zelensky and other officials have been talking about, calling it weaponizing hunger. Uh, We know that those Russian strikes hit grain warehouses, uh, destroying 100 tons of peas, 20 tons of barley, and injuring 
at least two people. Now, uh, Ukraine says that this is Russia's response after pulling out of that grain deal uh, earlier this week. Uh, that grain deal was so important for Ukraine, for the world's food supply. Russia, however, has said that they are responding to uh, that attack on the Kerch Bridge uh, by, uh, by Ukraine on Monday, that, that brazen attack by Ukraine using sea drones. Uh, but it is clear at this point that Russia, after the uh, termination or at, le- at least the suspension of this grain deal, is very much uh, going after Ukraine's food infrastructure with this fourth straight day of attacks. Guys. You know, Alex, this is all happening as the counteroffensive or attempted counteroffensive is still ongoing. U.S. intelligence says that Ukraine has now started using those controversial cluster munitions. You've done so much reporting on this on the ground over the course of the last week or so. Do you think this is going to change the narrative surrounding that counteroffensive? Well, certainly the the narrative that the U.S. wants to push, the Biden administration arguing that simply there is a shortage of artillery rounds, and this is what the U.S. has to give. It's not about the capability of the cluster munition. Ukraine needs artillery. Here are artillery rounds. Uh, But there's no doubt that they they do represent a a significant uh, escalation in, in what is capable. Uh, Ukrainian officers and officials eager to get them because of how destructive they are. Uh, It's a question of of how they're used. Um, I've heard experts say that they can be most effective when used against, say, groupings of Russian soldiers or or Russian uh, equipment, less effective uh, against entrenched warfare. Uh, But what is clear is right now Ukraine is struggling. This is very much an artillery fight between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine needs these rounds, and this is what can be offered at this time. How effective they will end up being, that we have to wait and see. Guys? All right, Alex Marquardt, live for us in Kyiv. Thank you. And on another story, there are chilling new developments in that Gilgo Beach murders case. In a source, uh, the source tells CNN that investigators think that the suspect, Rex Hewerman, killed women inside of his Long Island, New York home. He's now behind bars, charged with three murders. And we've learned that some of those victims disappeared when his family was out of town, suggesting that he may have lured them to his home for dates. With us now is CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, this is a fascinating development here uh, about uh, how the investigators are trying to piece together the the, the when and why uh, of all of this. And it seems like Huberman uh, was living in a double, a double life even more than uh, investigators have already established based on the fact that uh, they believe that he was responsible for at least three, potentially four murders. That's right. Um, and, you know, we have seen in the history of serial killer cases an innate ability to compartmentalize their normal lives, family lives, job lives, and then they're usually extraordinarily complex lives uh, where they operate in a hidden identity doing these things um, in a way to avoid detection. This case is like a lot of those. But I guess that's why I was so surprised by committing, potentially committing crimes in his own home. He has a family. He has a wife. Um, it seems like they were out of town. But is that normal? That seems well, even strange. As well, so normal doesn't come into right, this. Yeah, that's a fair uh, has it happened before? <laughs> yes. We've Look. seen... We've seen serial killers who have created operating environments in their home because it offers control and privacy. In this case, they don't know this, but why they suspect this is a strong possibility is two core reasons. Number one, tracking the victim's cell phones 
They have three, well, they have the four cases he's a suspect in, he's charged in three. But in three of those four cases, their cell phones seem to track from where they started out right to the Massapequa Park area of his home, and then they go dark. The other thing is, in all four of those cases, those were times when his wife and children were out of town, away from the house. Why do something in your own house where you're going to be creating evidence? Because it's the one place you have plenty of time to clean up that evidence. It's the place where what they call the murder kit, the things you're going to need to tie somebody up or do the rest of the things that are alleged in this case are readily available to you. Um, it's where a victim is screaming, unlike a hotel room at 1.30 in the morning where people are going to hear that, um, can be muffled. And it's a place where, more important than all of that, you as the killer feel you are in control of the environment and the victim is not. So do they have a piece of physical evidence that ties any of these victims to his home yet? The answer is no, but they have removed a lot of things that they're going to be testing to see if they can tie um, either the victim's presence there or evidence uh, of the victim at that location. Yeah. I want to get your expertise on another case we've been following. This has to do with Tupac Shakur's murder, decades old now. Uh, last night, speaking to uh, Sarah Seidner, uh, his brother spoke out about why this investigation, he, he thinks it's odd it's taken so long for them to get to this point to reopen this case. Listen. Well, this case has been in stages. Um, we're, we're, let me we're just play the sound yeah, real yeah. quick so folks can hear what he said. It's been 27 years, so it doesn't seem that there's been a lot of zeal or, or robust investigation of this case. This individual, the, this theory about his connection to the case has been floating around for years. He even He's said he was a witness, right, to, to the shooting, but never yes. said anything about who was the actual yes. killer. Yes, I, and that's my point. Where where would law enforcement been? It's a good question. This has all been out there. So he's talking about Keefe D, yeah. um, a Southside Crips gang member who claims he was in the car, not just a gang member, a gang leader. Um, when Tupac was shot the first time in New York City, I was deputy commissioner. I was on the scene of the shooting. Uh, we looked at it as a robbery, leaving that recording studio. The rap world looked at that as he was set up and it was the beginning of the East Coast, West Coast War. This would be the next piece of that. Um, but the investigation boiled down to Keefe D, the gang leader. His nephew was beaten up that night in the lobby of the MGM Hotel because he had robbed a member of Suge Knight's crew, beaten up by Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur and that Keefe D assembled a crew and went hunting for them that night. Now, he had an immunity deal. He's been part of investigations. He's been recorded um, talking about the circumstances of this. Um, but it's been an enormously complicated case. That was done by a federal task force. This is Las Vegas Metro PD, where the murder happened, reopening the case and going back to see if they can find clues to bring it home. It's been... It's been a long time. 27 years. And, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk. A lot of yeah. twists and turns there. Yeah. No question about it, John Miller. Thanks. Well, China-based hackers breaching the email account of the American ambassador in Beijing, adding to the list of other U.S. officials who have been targeted. Details on that ahead. And GOP Senator Lisa Murkowski says that if the 2024 race is a Biden-Trump matchup, she'll vote for Joe Manchin. Does that mean that it's time for a third-party candidate? We'll ask the former Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, next.
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Now, if there's one thing Americans apparently don't want, it's a rematch. CNN polling shows that very few people are excited about either Joe Biden or Donald Trump in 2024. And that is leading some to consider the viability of a third party run for president. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski thinks one of her Democratic colleagues might be up to the task. If it's a matchup between Biden and Trump, I know exactly where I'd go. I would go with I would go with Joe Manchin. I am one who doesn't like to use my vote for the lesser of evils. I want to be proactive in who I think could do the job. I think Manchin could do the job. But will our system allow for that? That I don't know. And joining us now is Republican Governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, the former governor, I should say. He's also an honorary national co-chair of the centrist political organization No Labels, which is actively considering running a third-party candidate in 2024. Uh, governor Hogan, thank you for joining us. As a, as a former constituent in Maryland, uh, I, I, uh, I made you a permanent governor there of that state. <laughs> I do want to ask you, though, about... Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. I want to ask you about what Lisa Murkowski was saying there, because uh, there was a new poll just out yesterday asking basically this question, asking voters, uh, would you consider a third-party candidate? There was a generic option, but there was also an option for them to choose Manchin and a Huntsman, a kind of unity ticket, a Republican and a Democrat. But when you look at the numbers here, 75 percent of those polled here say no, they wouldn't consider Manchin and Huntsman. Uh, I mean, doesn't that undermine the, the real core case that No Labels is trying to make to the country? I don't think so. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure all, whether Joe Manchin or Huntsman have any real interest in running for president and vice president. But when you look at the poll that you uh, put up just a moment ago, if you have a, a choice, 70 percent of the people in America do not want Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And not only we have two very unpopular potential nominees, but both of them potentially facing very serious legal troubles uh, most a overwhelming majority of Americans are looking for something else. And so when given the choice between Donald Trump, Joe Biden or neither, most Americans pick neither. And it's uh, look, there are 49 percent of the people in America right now that are uh, registered independent. And there are many. Fifty eight percent of the Democrats, I think, uh, do not want Joe Biden to be their nominee. About 50 percent of the Republicans do not want Donald Trump. If we're if we're faced with those two choices, look, it's very understandable why so many people in America would like to have another choice. So you've ruled out running for the Republican nomination, but over the last couple of days, your Twitter account's been posting some videos that some folks have said strike them as almost like soft uh, campaign style videos. Are you still considering a third party potential run for the presidency? It's not something that I'm considering, but uh, as I've said a number of times, look, we're in, in uh, really unprecedented, uncharted waters where we've never been as a country, and we don't know what it's going to be like next spring. And so, uh, you know, I left the door cracked open, but, uh, you know, we were, these were, they were campaign style videos that we put out uh, quite a while ago when I was, uh, you know, still governor and while we were considering running in the Republican primary. So we haven't, haven't done any, you know, overt steps to uh, take any actions. But 
I, I am uh, involved in no labels because I really believe in bipartisan common sense solutions and the ability to reach across the aisle. And I think we may be at the point, we don't know at this point, but we, it may be time for folks to have the courage to put the country first uh, and rather than just uh, continue the status quo politics as usual that we're all fed up with. I want to talk to you. You brought up uh, former President Trump's legal troubles. Uh, as you know, he's now under the potential cloud of another indictment. I want to play for you what former Vice President Mike Pence said about that yesterday. His reckless words on that day endangered my family and all of us at the Capitol. But uh, I'm, I'm not convinced it was criminal. Uh, and, and I hope it with the possibility of another indictment coming against the president. I, I hope it doesn't come to that. If Trump's words and actions endangered Pence's life, uh, threatened the peaceful transfer of power, do you think that he should not be prosecuted, as the former vice president just said? Well, look, I think the law is the final arbiter of men's actions and that no man is above the law. And these were serious uh, things that were taking place on January 6th. I was very involved in it. I actually had leaders of Congress calling me as the next door governor, begging me for help because they were, they were the Capitol Police were overwhelmed and under attack. And I sent the Maryland State Police uh, riot team. I called up the Maryland National Guard and for hours there was no action going on at the White House while we were taking action, uh, direct action immediately over and over again. And uh, the fact you know, that th this riotous mob took over the Capitol and people you know, kind of say, well, it was bad, but we really shouldn't look into it. It's crazy to me. I mean, I think uh, th this was one of the worst moments in American history. And the next day uh, after I called up the National Guard. Maryland National Guard was the first to arrive outside of D.C. Maryland State Police were the first to arrive. We got the situation under control with some of the allies. And, uh, you know, the next day I called on President Trump to resign and to let Mike Pence finish out the remainder of the term and conduct a peaceful transition. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, I admire Mike Pence. I think he stood up and did the right thing on January 6th and upheld the Constitution. Uh, but I would, you know, disagree with them that, uh, you know, we should excuse the president's behavior just because he happened to be president. I want to ask you now about uh, Ron DeSantis, who's running second in the Republican primary here uh, for for that nomination. You had said recently that DeSantis's campaign was, quote, dropping like a rock and close to over. There's been a lot of talk about a potential reset there. Do you where do you think he stands now? Do you think he can turn things around? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, he obviously got the message, and I think I was correct that the campaign was in turmoil, and, uh, and they, they were dropping, and now they've decided they've got to kind of retool the entire campaign and rebuild it from the ground up, because here's a guy who was getting all the attention, who had all the name recognition, was wall-to-wall -wall coverage on Fox News, and it seemed to be, with the, the Trump base, the, maybe the guy that's the next Trump, uh, and yet he has continued to falter. Uh, you know, I, I know he had some weaknesses, uh, both personally as a candidate and within the campaign. And I'm glad that they're, uh, you know, taking a look at trying to trying to retool. Uh, so we'll see how effective that is. But obviously, you don't make drastic changes and if things are going well. Do you think the message needs to change? I think so. I mean, he, he's been trying to kind of out-Trump Trump and uh, move to the right of him with the MAGA base. Uh, they took a look at him, and then they moved back to Trump. Uh, and so even with the indictments, Trump's numbers went up and DeSantis's went down. 
I think there are about 50 percent of the people in, a, uh, in the Republican primary do not want Trump. Uh, and I think you need to go appeal to those folks. We've got 12 candidates running. And so far, uh, nobody is really standing out. And I'm, I'm hopeful that someone with a positive, hopeful vision for America will step up and be able to unify all those folks that want to move, that, that, like I am, that, that want to move in a different direction away from Donald Trump and back to a more traditional, uh, more Reagan-esque, bigger tent Republican Party. All right, Larry Hogan, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. And coming up next, RFK Jr. facing a barrage of criticism for contradictions and conspiracy theories. That was coming under fire from his own family. John F. Kennedy's grandson blasting his cousin and backing Biden for president. That's next. And new this morning, John F. Kennedy's grandson not mincing words when it comes to his cousin RFK Jr.'s 2024 run. He's trading in on Camelot, celebrity, conspiracy theories, and conflict for personal gain and fame. I've listened to him. I know him. I have no idea why anyone thinks he should be president. What I do know is his candidacy is an embarrassment. Jack Schlossberg took to Instagram to blast Robert F. Kennedy's constant stream of misinformation and he endorsed Joe Biden in the process. Now, congressional Democrats yesterday grilled RFK Jr. over his controversial statements spreading vaccine misinformation and his conspiracy theories, claiming the people who are the most immune to COVID-19 are Ashkenazi Jews and the Chinese. Also happening this morning, federal authorities are investigating a series of email hacks targeting U.S. officials, including Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns. Three U.S. officials tell CNN China-based hackers breached Burns' account in a recent intelligence-gathering campaign that targeted the emails of, a, of the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Microsoft says the breaches began in mid-May when the hackers used a stolen sign-in key to burrow into the accounts. Beijing has accused Washington of conducting its own hacking operations. And now for a little bit of lighter news. Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson has added a new accolade to her long resume. She is now officially a member of the Divine Nine. Yesterday, she was inducted as an honorary member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated during its national convention in Indianapolis. And in an exclusive statement to CNN, Justice Jackson said, because Delta Sigma Theta only extends honorary memberships to women who have made significant contributions to society while excelling in their chosen fields, it is a tremendous honor to have been so recognized. I'm thrilled and humbled to be among this year's extraordinary group of inductees. Now, it may be unusual to see a sitting justice inducted into a sorority, but this sorority is one of a group of nine historically black sororities and fraternities that have long histories as centers of activism, so scholarship and service in the African-American community. On Thursday, also, Vice President Kamala Harris, she spoke at the Delta Sigma Theta convention yesterday, although she is actually a member of a different Divine Nine sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha. And I should also say, Phil, I'm also a Delta, and so she is now technically my sorority sister. Um, well, at least she's got, you know, famous and important friends that she can hang out I with. So. You know, I, I, that's it. That's cool. That's really cool. I'm not. <laughs> that's okay. I, I didn't rush. Maybe, I didn't rush. We'll I didn't rush. I don't think, I don't think I'm, I can't, like, the, the level of elite, I think, amongst that group, not me. All right. That's okay, Phil. We still love you. Thank you for that. 
Well, here's also what's important in the world. Barbenheimer week. Barbenheimer? Barbenheimer. Barben. Barbenheimer. It's upon us. Oppenheimer in the Barbie movie in theaters today. We will hear from the Barbie herself, Margot Robbie, and her co-star, America Ferreira, next. The movie turns a lot of things on its head and, uh, and to, in my opinion, tells us more about us as humans. It's a blockbuster holiday weekend. The highly anticipated movies, Oppenheimer and Barbie, are hitting theaters today. Our Sarah Seidner sat down with two stars of the Barbie movie last month before, I should note, the actors went on strike and she joins us now. So Sarah, a lot of people don't know this about Margot Robbie, but she played a really critical role in even getting this movie to be created in the first place. What did they tell you? Some interesting things. Um, it's, I asked them, I said, look, when I was a little girl, I didn't play with Barbie. I was too busy jumping out of trees and trying to be better than the... Well, no, I was just trying to be better than the boys all the time. It was very competitive. And Margot Robbie jumps up and says, me too. And then America Ferreira says, I didn't play with Barbie either. And I was like, so what's with the movie? And both of them... (laughs) (laughs) It's a great follow-up. I mean, (laughs) both of them said, this movie has heart. It will make you laugh, but it might also make you cry. It's deep. Barbie is deep. That's what I learned. Take a listen. All right, I'm going to start with you, Margot. Everyone makes Barbie into who they think she is because she doesn't talk, she doesn't walk. So we use our imaginations. How did you decide who Barbie was going to be in this film? To be honest, Greta knew from... The beginning, really, that she wanted Barbie to have the classic hero's journey. Um, She actually used, like, Buddha's journey to enlightenment as a reference. And I was like, okay, wow, I didn't see that coming. But now that you've said it, it does make perfect sense. Um, And so, so suddenly she did have, like, this framework of a narrative. And within that, we could have all these conversations on so many different levels. And and what we wanted to do about with those conversations is, kind of honor the legacy that the 64 years of Barbie has, you know, created, you know, and, and also bring it into today's day, you know, have our, have culturally relevant conversations. Okay, I do have to ask America, how deliciously ironic is it that Ryan Gosling's age became the thing that people were talking about not the woman but the man for once Uh, oh yeah it is ironic yeah i just heard that that's a thing um you know that's the that's the fate of the kens in barbie land is they essentially have to suffer a lot of the the fate of women in the real world (laughs) and um and you know it 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 kind of highlights its stupidity, really. Um, but but it's uh, you know the movie turns a lot of things on its head, and uh, and to, in my opinion, tells us more about us as humans um, than than really you know a movie about dolls. Mm-hmm. And America, you play one of the few characters who is not a doll, who is not a Barbie in the movie. You're a real life person going through real life challenges as a working woman. Um, what happens when you and Barbie meet finally? Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's, we okay, don't spoil it. Give us, we're friends. 
the moment that Gloria and Barbie connect, I just started like bawling and, and it felt so um, beautiful that, you know, a grown woman could explore um, her imagination and her playfulness and, and really be enthusiastic about something that she loved and something that was playful and inspiring to her. And that that didn't have to be in contradiction to her as like a grown, serious, professional woman. Um, I have to be honest though. I, I was not a Barbie obsessed girl. I was too busy jumping out of trees and racing boys and trying to be better than the boys. Um, I did, was did exactly you all like play you. with Barbies. I was okay. not a Barbie. I was not a Barbie girl. Were you? you were I, okay. I no, I was exactly like you, Sarah. I was like doing, trying to beat the boys at everything. And I, I asked my mom before this press tour, I was like, Mom, do you have any pictures of me like playing with Barbies or opening a Barbie on Christmas or anything like that? It'd be really helpful for nope. this upcoming press tour. <laughs> and she was like, you, I couldn't even get you to wear a dress. <laughs> I was like, oh. I mean, A, like we couldn't afford Barbies. B, like, I don't know. It just like didn't, this world of Barbie didn't feel like it had very much for me in it, to be perfectly honest. But that is what is so beautiful to me about this moment and getting to be a part of this story that is expanding the world of Barbie to include the rest of us. And what I think the movie gives us is the permission to be more of who we are. That like Barbie gets to be that we're all Barbie and Barbie gets to be whatever the hell Barbie wants to be. Margo, what are you hoping to impart to the audience with this film? The feeling of like, yes, it's like you want to do this and you want to be a good mom and you want to be a good friend and you want to be a good husband and you want to be an ally and you want to be an activist, but you want to just do your job and you just want to get through the day and blah, 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 blah. If I can put <laughs> all yeah. of that off your shoulders and just say, you're already doing great. You are doing great because you are you and that is enough. That's what I would give. It's like the erasing of imposter syndrome, right? I think we've all suffered from that and women more than anyone else. Um, so that's a beautiful thing. Did the Barbie sleepover happen? I heard that, that director Greta Gerwig was like, you guys need to have this. Yes. <laughs> and it was so much fun. We had a Barbie sleepover. The Kens were invited to visit, not to stay over, obviously. Um, <laughs> Uh, we all wore our pajamas and ordered room service and we shared beds and um, we played games and we all discovered how incredibly competitive America is when it comes to games. Let's talk about how Ryan sent a man in a kilt to play bagpipes at us for three minutes and then recite the speech from a brave heart. That was, happened. That's what? much interesting. It was just amazing. And I if that still, doesn't bond you, I don't know what the... I still don't get the joke. Was it an inside joke? No, no, oh, there, was no there was no relation. There was no Braveheart joke. connection <laughs> at all. Was he trying to say, like, freedom? Like, what? I, he must have been trying like, to say something. Ryan, I guess. I feel like he was rallying. <laughs> he was, it, it was, was right before we were starting. It right? was, like, was a, like, yeah, a rallying war cry, perhaps, yeah. Ladies, I I actually was like, oh, am I going to see the Barbie? But the way you've described it, it's like something I think that girlfriends could go to together and buddies oh. could go to together with the kids and just oh, yeah. enjoy the ride. It's a party and everyone is invited. All right, spoiler alert. Here's a lesson you will learn from this movie because I may or may not have seen it. Um, being human is hard. Being a female human is even harder, but it's worth it. 
that's a great moral of the story. That's my zen for yes. the morning. Barbie is deep. So I have a theory about the uh, bagpipes because oh. I'd heard that story before. Maybe it was like a primal male scream. Like they weren't, <laughs> the Kens were not allowed at the sleepover. <laughs> so they really just had like the Braveheart thing. That's that, my that actually, that. That, that fits. That completely and utterly fits. I mean, can I weigh in here? I was going to say, <laughs> nobody's yes. talking yes. about yes, like, Ken. I mean, no, I, uh, I don't, Phil. Okay, for, Do you tell us, Ken? Stop. <laughs> what I will say is, like, that that move from a, like, leadership perspective <laughs> to me is like, oh, yeah, that's totally dope. And then, like, I hear them describe it. I was like, oh, wow, that's super weird. Yeah, <laughs> may, do right? that. That's may not cool. That. Regardless not of cool. audience, but particularly with that audience. Uh, <laughs> I but, do need to remind people this is a Warner Brothers Discovery program. Yes. We are also owned by Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, but And they did this obviously before the strike um, because this is not, you, you're not allowed to, to sort of promote things. So that's where we are. I enjoyed it. That being said, we love your Barbie pink. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> gracing us with your presence. Oh, wait. I, oh, yeah, I was going to oh, say, like, we were all World. pausing and waiting so we could get oh, this. There we go. Barbie That's cake good. pop. We need this. This is happiness. This is, happiness. <laughs> this is it. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, buddy. All right. Well, there is another important film that's coming out, despite Sarah's focus on only one of them. Most blockbusters, when it comes to this film, they use a lot of CGI. In fact, you talk about another big release this summer, the new Indiana Jones movie created a computer-generated Harrison Ford de-aged to make the 81-year-old actor look 40 years younger. And in the new Mission Impossible movie, this stunt is definitely real. But the ramp Tom Cruise used to fly off of this cliff was painted out of look-alike grass and gravel. But in Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan told The Hollywood Reporter there are no CGI shots, and that includes a scene depicting the first-ever test explosion of the nuclear bomb. We wanted imagery that has beauty but threat to it. Computer graphics tend to be, they can feel a bit anodyne, a bit safe. Um, that's why they're tough to use in horror movies, for example. Uh, but finding, challenging my team to use real methods, some of them microscopic and tiny, some of them absolutely vast, uh, that, I think, gives the imagery the bite that it needs. But it's worth noting, this isn't new for Nolan. He's made a career out of using practical effects in his movies whenever he can. In one of the most iconic moments of The Dark Knight, Nolan flipped a semi-truck end over end for this scene. And later in the movie, he did this. Now again, both the truck flip and this hospital explosion were done using practical effects, not computer generated at all. So for the final installment of his Batman trilogy, the external shots of this opening airplane sequence were shot practically, including this. Calm down, Doctor. Now is not the time for fear. That comes later. And in 2010's Inception, Nolan built a real-life rotating hallway for this dream-within-a-dream fight scene. In the movie Interstellar, to get the effect of an ice-covered planet, Nolan filmed these scenes on this melting glacier in Iceland. And in his most recent movie, Tenet, Nolan crashed a real 747, insisting it was, quote, more efficient than using CGI. 
this is all completely fascinating, a little bit different than Barbie. Moviegoers will be able to get the chance to see Oppenheimer and its total and complete lack of CGI today. That's super interesting, Phil. Thank you for that. And up next for us, the U.S. women's take the field tonight in the, as they begin their quest to be the first country to win three World Cups in a row, men or women. Our next guest knows a thing or two about winning the World Cup. The legendary Brianna Scurry will join us next. And welcome back. In just a few hours, the U.S. national soccer team, the women's team, is set to make their appearance at the World Cup. And joining us now on that is former goalkeeper for the U.S. team, Brianna Scurry. It was her save during the penalty kicks that helped the team win the World Cup back in 1999. She is also a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Brianna, thank you for joining us. There's so much pressure, as I'm sure you know, on this team today, today and right now to become the first to win three World Cups in a row. How important is this first game for them in setting the tone? Uh, the first game is absolutely critical. It sets the tone, like you said. Um, you want to come into that first game and literally blow the doors off the opponent and also make a statement in your group and throughout the tournament um, that shows that the USA is ready to go. Uh, Vladko normally has a little bit of rotation in his starting lineup, so today's starting 11 may not be the same as the starting 11 against the Netherlands, but today's game is absolutely critical. For folks who are familiar, I think you know there's still a number of the top veterans that are on this team that everybody will know. Uh, but there's also just a core group of younger players, don't have certainly a lot of, uh, I think, public attention before now if you're not in kind of this, the world or the scene, uh, but are hugely talented. Who should they be watching? Yes, there's 14 newcomers out of 23 players on the roster this time around. So I would definitely look out for uh, Trinity Rodman, um, and she is the Trinity Rodman, um, you know, Dennis Rodman's daughter. She's very good. She's uh, exceptional. And also uh, Sophia Smith, who's also up top with Trinity. She's a fantastic player. This is her first time. But also, which is really critical, in my opinion, are the two center backs, uh, Alana Cook and uh, Naomi Gurma, who are going to be playing in front of uh, Alyssa Nahr, um, the former captain and stalwart uh, Becky Sauerbrunn got injured and so two rookies will be playing a very critical center back positions. All right, Brianna Stewart, uh, we will all be watching tonight uh, as the U.S. women's team hits uh, the grass on the field. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. This is CNN Breaking News. And we have breaking news, sad breaking news. This morning, music icon Tony Bennett has died at the age of 96. Chloe Malas joins us now. And Chloe, um, legend feels like an understatement to some degree when you talk about Tony Bennett. What more can you tell us? Yes, I mean, incredibly sad news for people all over the world this morning. Tony Bennett has died at the age of 96. His publicist, Sylvia Weiner, his longtime publicist, uh, confirming this morning. And, um, you know, this comes as a shock to many. Um, he lived a long, beautiful life. I had the honor of meeting him when he turned 90 and performed in New York at the Rainbow Room. Uh, we don't know the circumstances of his death, but we know that he had been battling Alzheimer's for the past several years. Uh, his wife, Susan Bennett, she actually told AARP magazine in 2021 um, that despite the Alzheimer's, he was continuing to perform, 
put out music. Um, you know, obviously we know that he toured and put out albums with Lady Gaga. I've reached out to her and I'm sure that this is obviously a devastating loss for her. They were just so close. Um, but his career spanned decades from the early 1950s. And Frank Sinatra is someone who touted him as one of the greatest voices of a generation. Um, and so I, you know, meeting Tony Bennett, there's just nothing like, like it. Um, and he was so charismatic, so kind, and just uh, obviously so talented. And so it's a very sad day for everyone uh, who had the pleasure of meeting him, knowing him, or just loving his music to know that he has passed um, at his home in New York at the age of 96. Yeah, and this is a this is a legend, really, whose career spans many, many decades, going all the way back to the 1940s. And as you were talking, Chloe, we were playing some of that video of, of Tony Bennett as he was making one of his last performances, maybe even the last with Lady Gaga. Uh, he was able to, even in his final years, as he was battling Alzheimer's, still perform and really uh, give the audience what they've always loved about him, which is his ability to perform music. And Lady Gaga really kind of identified with him, bringing him in to this modern era. We actually have with us now Anderson Cooper uh, on the phone. Anderson, you've spent some time with Tony Bennett. W what are you thinking about today as we mark his passing? Well, it just, I mean, what an extraordinary life. I had the, the honor of doing a profile of Tony and his wife, Susan, um, and uh, for, for 60 Minutes when he did his final shows with Lady Gaga that you were just talking about. And I got to spend a significant amount of time with him. I was in his apartment uh, watching him rehearse uh, with his longtime accompanist. Um, you know, he has lived just an extraordinary, epic life. There's a lot of people who don't know a lot of the details of his life. I mean, uh, his service during, yeah, you know, service to the country during the war. Uh, he was one of the an early artists involved in the civil rights movement, um, in a, in a very serious way, marching, performing. Um, he sacrificed a lot uh, over the years uh, for that. Um, but at the, you know, I think his most extraordinary performances I and mean, the, the last three performances that he did at Radio City with Lady Gaga, I think everybody who was there knew that they were witnessing um, something really just incredible, that this man who uh, much of his memory was gone, he, uh, when I was interviewing him, I would be talking to him and he, you know, he would not remember what he had just said. He would not remember certainly who I was sitting there talking to him. Um, but his wife, Susan, all during COVID, kept him engaged, kept him, uh, kept him alive and kept him Tony Bennett. And in the end, Tony Bennett knew who Tony Bennett was when, when Alzheimer's had, had robbed him of many of his memories, uh, of his extraordinary life. He knew inherently in, in his mind still that he was Tony Bennett. And when that music started to play, uh, he would you could see him transforming into Tony Bennett once again. And I sat, I, I stood there by the piano in his apartment while he was rehearsing his, his, and I just interviewed him and it had been a very difficult interview because he could only say a few sentences um, and clearly didn't, you know, really know why we were there. Um, but as soon as his piano player started playing a few bars, 
he trotted up to the piano with this this incredible energy, put his elbow on the piano, and he just launched into an hour-long set of all his greatest hits without any sheet music, nothing. It was all from memory, and it was all so he, you know, and and it just it was one of the most extraordinary experiences in my life to stand there and watch it. And suddenly, while he was singing. Because I was standing with by the piano with him, he was looking at me and relating to me as Tony Bennett. And if I didn't know better, I would have thought he knew exactly who I was and why I was there. And engaging with a, he was engaging with me in a way through the music that he couldn't do in any other way. So it's it's such a it's a sad day, of course. Um, you know, we've all lost one of the great artists of our time, and yet, it, what a triumphant life! And to have sent this, so, you know, the message that he sent to so many families out there who have people, loved ones with Alzheimer's, um, you know, this message of hope and this message of possibility um, that he could still have a, a a vibrant life because of the love of his wife Susan, his son Danny, all his all his kids, um, and and I'll never forget the last performance that I. The privilege of being at backstage with him at Radio City Music Hall just a, a short time before he went on. He was in the back and he turned to Susan and he didn't know exactly where he was. And he said, you know, what are we doing? And she said, you know, you're you're performing tonight in like 10 minutes. And he said, great. And she said, let's go over the set. And he said, great. And she did. They went over what numbers he was going to do. He went back. He went to stand in the wings. I was standing there with him. And as soon as, and he was watching Lady Gaga perform on stage because she was, he did a set and she did a set. And then he would come out at the end and she would come out at a certain point with him. And watching Lady Gaga, you could see like the music just flowing into him and he started tapping his feet and clicking his, his, his you know, fingers together. He went out, he killed it out there. He went out there with his first words, like the crowd just erupted. His first words were, wow. And they just loved it. He did his whole set. And then... The first two nights when Lady Gaga had come out, he had said, like, wow, look who's here. But he hadn't said her name. And I talked to Lady Gaga about it afterward, and she felt that he, in the moment on the stage, those first two nights, he didn't remember her name. But, and while they were rehearsing uh, in the weeks leading up to it, she was concerned that, that he didn't remember her name. But on that final night, when she came out and he turned and he saw her coming out, he said, wow, Lady Gaga. And she burst into tears. I mean, everybody just burst into tears. It was just an extraordinary night. And um, I mean, what what a life we have been able to to witness and benefit from over all these decades. Anderson, uh, CNN has now confirmed that Tony Bennett has died. We're expecting a statement shortly. That 60 piece that you did, Anderson, was so incredibly poignant. And I remember when, uh, you know, Lady Gaga was kind of describing that like, it was almost like a switch flipped, and then you demonstrated it. We also made a great point, the life lived. We've only got about a minute and a half left. Civil rights in particular, obviously his military service. Can you capture uh, what, what he was, uh, not just those last performances, but just overall? This was a kid who, you know, didn't have much when he was born and had a, a family that, you know, loved him and that uh, supported him. But he uh, he created who he was and he, you know, he was all about music from the beginning to the end. And, you know, his son Danny was an incredible manager for him. 
you know, reintroduced him to whole new generations of people over the decades in the 1980s and the 1990s, doing duets with some of the greatest contemporary artists of the day. And and his you can't talk about Tony Bennett without talking about Susan, his wife, uh, who loved him her entire life, basically grew up listening to his music and was just an incredible, incredible champion and uh, and partner uh, in all of this. And uh, my thoughts are certainly with his family today. Um, and with Tony and, you know, uh, there's, you know, he's still good, wherever he is, he's still singing and I think that we have his music and we have his voice and, and I'm going to be listening to him today. And thank you, Anderson, for your beautiful reflections of him as well. I will have much more on this story and all of the breaking news on CNN News Central, which starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.